Well, welcome back to the Boombasticast with myself, Alexander Hawk, and the great Matthew Fisher. No shit. No shit. I'm the I'm the great. No shit. Thanks, buddy. No shit. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, Today, we got a great person uh, that we're going to be interviewing, uh, Mr. Robert Lasardo. Um, you know him from the TV series Nip Talk. You've seen, seen him in the uh, movie The Mule. And also, he's one of uh, the only uh, person we brought on here that, uh, that's, that's you know, a big name that I have to say I had, had the pleasure of actually working with. With uh, both on Attack of the Unknown, Bloodthirst, Bridge of the Doomed, uh, he's a really cool guy. A lot of, I mean, a very great actor. Uh, one of those that's that he's been in so many iconic films, so many iconic TV series, and every time you watch him, you just you just drawn in because he's such a captivating. Uh, uh, person he brings in such so much depth to all of his roles and you just can't help but you know just be brought in uh watching him and uh you know yeah. abel ferrara's fucking china girl king of new york which we are uh, you know we've talked about king of new york on the show before with james lorenz um, I wonder if they shared a scene together. I should have done a little researchy. You know what I mean? Of course, moving with Richard Pryor, one of my favorite Richard Pryor vehicles of all time, right up there with Hear No Evil, See No Evil, um, Renegade, which from our, you know, we just had, well, not just, but not too long ago. You know what I mean? Jack yeah. Shoulder was in the building, the director of it. Short Circuit yeah. 2. The, I, I can see, you, you talk about sequels that are better than the original. I'll put Short Circuit in there, not just because Robert was in it, but because I think it's an all-around better film, ladies and gentlemen. But, uh, yeah, I'm very excited, you know. This is a gentleman, uh, his face, you know. You know, it's one of those deals. If you don't know the name, you know the face. You know the presence, you know what I mean? But a lot of people know the name. We know the name. Now y'all all know the name. And with that being said... This gentleman right here definitely knows his own fucking name. Let's welcome to the show, Robert Lasardo. Hey, Robert, how you doing? Good. How you guys doing? Not too bad. Doing not too great, bad. man. Good morning. Good, very good morning to you. I got a coffee going. <laughs> Alex, don't drink coffee. No, no, no. I, dr- I, I drink tea. I drink tea instead of coffee. Yeah, I twisted tea. <laughs> Maybe Great. a Long Island iced tea, you know, when I'm done. <laughs> That's good for you. Keep shop. Yeah. All right, cool. So, um, yeah, we'll, 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 when we kick off the show, we like to do this little introduction before we start up with the show. Um, all the highs, how you doing, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah, if you, we can probably pop right into it. We, we'll, we kick off with, we'll just kind of start where you got the bug for getting into the old entertainment world, you know what I mean? Influence yeah. and such. And then we kind of maneuver through uh, the projects, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, you, uh, know, you guys, you guys could help me out, like, uh, cause I gave you some reference material. So rather than, if you would, if you'd be kind enough, yeah. I'd really appreciate it to give introductions to some of the projects. Cause I know, uh, uh, we've, we've worked together on a couple of movies. So if you could kind of give an intro, uh, spare me the narrative so I can just come in. 
on the tail end and explain my experience working on these projects, it would help me a lot. Because okay. I can't, honestly, I can't even remember half the fucking things I'm working on. <laughs> I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not, it's not a glory thing. I just honestly can't remember. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm just trying to learn how to pronounce my, my my friend's name. His name is Ivan Jogia. He was just in a new Resident Evil movie. He's blowing up. I just did a movie with Ivan Jogia. But just learning how to pronounce his name took me like a while because yeah. it's a very cool, unique name. So, and I don't want to disrespect him, you know, he's a cool guy. And uh, so anyway, that's all I'm trying to say. I can't remember all the names and all the projects, but I want to, you know, give respect to everyone as much as I can. We appreciate that, yeah. Oh, just help me out. Yeah, we'll <laughs> help you out as much man. as we can. Please. You know what I mean? We got yeah. it under wraps. <laughs> Alex is a very helpful person up there. Yeah. I try, I try, I try. He's to, smart. Uh, Alex is smart as fuck, man. He's, he, doesn't miss, he doesn't miss a beat. I know that about him. Hey, that's what I like Thanks, to hear. Man. That's why I keep him around. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he keeps me around to keep him honest. That's, that's why he keeps I me around. I guess so, shit. <laughs> Fuk, fukwa. There's a saying. There's a saying, guys. Every man to the devil his own way. You know what I mean? (laughs) I like that. Every man's the devil in his own way. No, each 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 man to the devil his own way. We're all going like so. Each man to the devil his own way. His own vice leads him to the devil, so to speak. So we have those that we consign in our lives to guide us maybe away from that that pattern. So every man or each man to the devil his own way. We all get there by our own vice, one way or the other. So the goal is to steer away from that. Unless, of course, you want to hang out with the devil. That's up to you. That's your trip. He's selfish at parties, I hear. Oh, uh, well. He takes I don't go to many parties. I walk too hard for that. That should be the name of the episode. That was heavy. That was some heavy shit. I like oh, that. right on. Right on, yeah. I like that. Each man, each man to the devil. <laughs> <laughs> with Robert Lissardo. <laughs> uh, dig. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, you gentlemen, ready to venture forth into this, this, yeah, this master of ceremony? Heck yeah, Johnny Russell. Right. Hell yeah, Hawkman! You want to bring us in? Sure. Um, right. I gotta say, of uh, before I got the honor of working with you, I mean, I've been following your career. Always been a big fan. Actually, I have to think. Uh, I think the first time I remember seeing you was on Nas Bridges. Now, there was an episode. I know you were in there for two different uh, episodes as two different characters. Now, I don't remember the specific of the episode other than the fact that you had Don Johnson and Chief Marin. They're looking for someone. And they're trying to find them. I think the I think the person had like a a tattoo with like a certain color yeah. or something like that. Yeah. And then you know, of course, you were uh, trying to help them out, and you and you shown uh, your tattoos. Like, is it like more of this color or that color? And I always thought that was an extremely cool scene. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I thought I thought that was I thought that was really awesome. And and one of the things I was wondering, uh, how long did it take for you to uh, to do all that? To uh, when did you start doing the tattoos? And well, 
Oh, let me just address the show real quick because I remember someone had asked me a question regarding that episode of Nash Bridges uh, in terms of the uh, coloring of the tattoo, whether it was there, uh, you know, originally, or that they, you know, doctored it up with someone coming with some additional coloring on my back. So the answer to that is yes, someone did uh, adjust the colors on my back, you know, to stay in line with the plot so they could identify that color relationship to what they were searching for. So, yeah, it was kind of manipulated. So if anybody out there who remembers this wants to know if it was mine or theirs, it was theirs. Oh. Um, so that answered that question. But in terms of uh, the genesis of the ink, man, I started uh, when I was 17. Yeah. I was 17 years old. Tattooing was illegal in New York City. Uh, I got my first tattoo by a tattoo artist named Mike Perfetto of Brooklyn. And uh, he tattooed out of his house. Because back in those days, that was the deal. Because there were no shops. Like that. It was not glamorized. It was something on the down low. And he kind of hung out with uh, various types. I remember seeing this guy. He pulled out this uh, buck knife. And he was like doing some kind of decorations and carving something on this movie. And I thought, okay. Uh, <laughs> Did I take a long turn? But uh, it actually turned out to be uh, quite a quite a fun experience. I became really good friends with Mike Feather, and then I came back a few more times to start collecting before I was Long story short, I got the majority of my ink my upper torso tattoo overseas, traveling to places like Australia, Indonesia, Fiji Islands, Hawaii, you know, all over the place. So by the time I was 22, Upper body was pretty much, all the real estate was pretty much covered. Yeah. 1985, I was at almost a half suit on the upper body. That's oh, cool. I'm, I'm glad you got taps that, like, you you know, remind you of a place, you know, time and place and such where tattoos have been kind of exploited, kind of, in the last couple of years where everybody's got a tattoo about, you know, what, what they had for breakfast that morning. They get tattooed on their arm, you know what I mean? <laughs> I always like hearing the old stories of, uh, you know, yeah. meaning, back with the meaning and, and, and meaning something to more than yeah. just... Our culture, you know, we got like uh, like the rap generation right now is weird with the tattoos where they just tattoo like the most ridiculous thing on their face. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know. I noticed a lot of people hit, hitting their face now. I think it's why even and beautiful women too. Just I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. Right. But, you know, I remember I come from the time you have to remember when I was getting tattooed down, I would go to auditions and casting directors redirect me, not so polite and say, excuse me. Uh, the messenger entrance is around back. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I'm not here to deliver a package. I'm here auditions. And she's looking me up and down. And I remember back in the day, it was not trending. It wasn't trendy. It wasn't cool. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't any of those things. It was frowned upon. You were considered a social pariah. So if anyone would have told me back in those days that I would see young men and women attracted to ornament themselves to such a degree of you know, neck, face, upper body and to the extent in which I never would have believed it. Yeah. I honestly would have thought no no way that's but I'm actually glad it did. Me too. As much as you know you, you kind of touched on how it's been trivialized and I agree with that. I still feel like it's made my life a lot easier now because people don't trip on it as far. They just look at it, oh wow, where'd you get your work done? Before it's like, oh my God, 
you know, you're dating him. Did you see all those things? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember trying to, like, every time I have to, I go out with some female, some chick, I would have to deal with the parents or some shit, you know, meet the parents. You know? <laughs> it was like a nightmare. They're like, oh, my God, I'd like him if he didn't have all those tattoos. It was always, like, an issue. There. You know, for me, it was I could care less. But I noticed how people would act like, uh, you know, the creature from the Black Lagoon just showed up, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. We're left, man. It's just ink. It's just artwork. You know, calm down. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to jump off my skin and bite you. Relax. It's okay. <laughs> it's like you walked in. With it, haven't we, though? We've come full circle. It's kind of nice. I'm, I'm digging it. Yeah, back in the back in the day, they'd consider kind of like a burden, if you will, to, in, the, in the entertainment business to have a tattoo on you. They'd put sleeves on you to cover it up, makeup and stuff like that. Now it's yeah. it's uh, the deal. Yeah, I enjoy that for sure. I did, yeah, back I did an episode. I did an episode of uh, back in the day in the nineties. There was a series that was uh, pretty popular. It was called NYPD Blue. Mm. It was one of Stephen Bochco's uh, shows. And I remember meeting with Steve Bochco multiple times, and they they were really impressed, I guess, with my ambition. But their concern was that at that point in my life, I had decided to tattoo my neck. And their concern was, based on the story, that it would be too much of a giveaway as far as the, uh, the cops being able to identify and find them. So what they did was they did a makeup test to see if they could cover the tattoo. Work. So that was the first time. I've been in an experience, experience of situation where producers really took the time considerations of God they saw as a problem and remedy to allow me to do my thing. Shows that was, but show me what was possible. Yeah. Yeah, it really is like a stereotype type deal that tag you with, you know what I mean? Just having a tattoo. It's madness. It's madness. We're in a better time uh, yeah, of acceptance now. But with the the new the the mumble rap, there's this thing called the mumble rap, and they all tat. It's it's I, I believe what it is. It's it's like sub, I think suburban kids and ki- kids of parents that work at record labels, and they want to become like a rapper, we'll say, and they don't really have any street credit. So what they so they tattoo their face, like you know what I mean? It's like quick street credit because it it has that. Bad boy image, if you will, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. their way of adding it to something, you know. You see it a lot with all these little Zans and all these little Hukamaki, Dukadaki, whatever, you know, all these crazy names. Uh, it's a weird, 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 yeah. The, hip-hop's weird, though. And it's, are you a hip-hop fan at all? Old school. Like, Old school, uh, yeah, from Brooklyn. Like Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five, Rock Bass, uh, Public Enemy, all the really? old stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, I just, I, I grew up listening to a lot of that stuff because I think the, 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 the philosophy from what I could, I could see, from what I get from it was that the music was designed as, as a kind of poetic, prophetic verse to help young men, especially in the black communities, to recognize the peril of a certain lifestyle. So the music was kind of designed in its lyric to show you the consequences of uh, life crime. So it was kind of helping young people, especially in the black community, kind of get out of the darkness and go toward the light, you know, where I feel like then it shifted and it became something where it was taking the kids back into the darkness. What the lyrics suggest, what they were glorifying, was counter to what the original poets and these rappers and poetry did create 
in the music to me was there was a profundity to it that was had esoteric meaning, even though it was, you know, they, they'd make videos and show it was like the South Bronx and the Klein. They would show elements of that um, subculture, but they would point to what the consequences would be if you turn to that path. So I think in some way they were trying to guide young people through the music to an awakening like Tupac did and others to remind them that, you know, man, it's, you know, it's not all good in the hood, you know? And so I think some of that has got lost over time. Yeah. I think think there's no related, like relatability to it nowadays, really with a lot of people where. There's a lot of posture, a lot of posture. Yeah. In relationship to an image that's tied into something. And I understand that. I mean, people look in the mirror, they want to identify with something. They want to feel relevant. They want to be, I guess, liked by others. They want to be whatever the, you know, the acceptance trip is, depending on the social dynamics that they're in. I understand that. The difficulty though is you have to be, there's a certain accountability and responsibility for what you're putting out there to people because it's so easily accessible and digestible to the masses that if you, if you have that kind of power to push a thought into the world, man, you have to deal with the consequences. Because the kids move up mm. and they start to they start to reflect a disposition of whatever you're communicating. So if you're not really considering what you're saying and the ramifications of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know what you mean. Put out there, man. It is. It's I think they the only thing that they can really really like you, you like you're talking about the older hip hop music with the struggle music it's kind of like the come up and people relate to it because everybody kind of struggles I feel in a way so like they can but but you know people can't relate to hundred thousand dollar wristwatches and you know having a bunch of escalades in their front yard and stuff like that you know what I mean I think it, it, oh, speak it for yourself I got some right outside right now send one over to me damn <laughs> shit. And then, like, but the drug—I think drug culture is kind of the big, the big connection now. Where you with rap, everybody's all really fucked up on, like, really, like the whole thing is how fucked up can you be? Almost, and I think it's because the only thing they can actually relate to regular people is drugs at this point. Woo! <laughs> so, um, jump in when you jump when you got out of the military. You know, when did the whole entertainment and the acting thing catch you, the bug catch you? You know what I mean? Was that something you always kind of had in you or? <coughs> had a lot of aggression. Yeah. I mean, like a lot of us do, young men do grow up in the 70s in New York City. I went to the high school for performing arts. I had to audition to get in. I think every year they would audition 2,000 people except 70. So I got lucky, I guess. I got auditioned and I got in, and that was the first time that I realized, not by my own understanding, but what other people point out to me, that I had this ability to affect others. And what I noticed when I was on stage was that I felt the sense of freedom and the sense of uh, limitlessness and hope, you know, that didn't feel with the everyday life. Everything felt so constricting, aggressive, without, without the promise of, of, of better days. There just wasn't enough breathing in the streets. Everybody's moving so fast. It's tight. There's fighting going on. 
So when I got on stage, I was able to perform, get out of that, this other listen, literature, playwrights, Tennessee Williams, all these various uh, writers, authors that communicated things that were mind-blowing to show me the possibility of other worlds, characters, fields, places so to speak, that I could move through it with the, you know, use imagination to escape the, uh, this kind of dire existence. Man. So the stage was like sanctuary. It came that I didn't know it at first, but I stepped on, on the stage and I started performing. I would lose myself in the character. I'd lose myself in the play and be reborn again into this, this fiction that became more of a reality than my real life was. It would switch. So once I experienced this kind of liberated consciousness with utilizing imagination and the, and the author's words, I just stepped into all these different worlds. It was like being able to astrojet without a spaceship. You could just use imagination to move to all these different realms to play different characters. It's exciting. So that that's where I first got the bug. You know, that's where it got me. Uh, but I, I, I had to be pointed out because, you know, I was conflicted between what was happening, the catharsis that was occurring on stage and the, the pull toward the street and this notion of identity was very confusing. You know, a lot of men go through a state, some men go through this identity crisis of teenage years where they're not really sure what to do, where they're going or what makes sense. You know? So when once I felt like I was a split person. I one, one side of me felt this, uh, this uh, affection and and uh, and uh, spiritual connection to the craft that I felt, you know, freed me from the temptations of things that I, I knew that would destroy my life. And so it's this constant battle between the two personalities, one wanted to, you know, I guess fulfill this notion of identity, independent creativity, or I have to live this way and I have to uh, follow the street, you know, the street uh, fundamentals and my friends that are like, yo, man, what are you doing? You know, it's going on stage. All my friends were like getting tattooed and we would hang out, you know, get into trouble and stuff. And there was something very exhilarating about the drama on the street, man. So it's kind of like, you know, I, and people were, you know, I caught a case when I was young. I went to court and I almost went upstate to juvenile hall. I got lucky and the judge, uh, let me go. But, um, she said, you know, you may want to just consider taking that drama and putting it on. She says, what do you, what school do you go to? So I go to the high school performing arts. She says, well, I think you'd be better inclined to use your gift on stage rather than act out this stupidity in the street. Because if I see you again, you're done. Going upstate, so I, I got kind of scared straight rather quickly. And realized that I had to shift my attention toward the stage and take all that frustration, aggression, and all that, and just kind of, you know, politely, respectfully say goodbye to to certain friends of mine that were getting killed or going to jail. I saw the collapse around me, and I realized there was nothing. There was nothing romantic about it. People romanticize it. They romanticize these movies, these gangsters, these ideas of, uh, of what it's like to live. But when you see people around you, their lives be destroyed. There's nothing romantic about it. It just sucks. It's sad. And so um, I, I think the stage saved me 
but it wasn't enough. You know, once I got out of performing arts high school, I realized that I was kind of lost still. And so that's when I decided to join the military. I went into the Navy for four years and uh, became a cop. I, I became a, a, a police officer. I worked I was canine. I was special ops and I was stationed in the Aleutian Islands to do security up there during the Cold War. So that really got my, got my butt in line in terms of discipline, prioritizing my life and, you know, just learning how to be a, a, a man in the sense of responsibility, not this macho, you know, stereotypical, you know, let's earn, you know, earn stripes by how bad we can be, how much time we do and all that bullshit. It was more about, you know, more constructive, way of building character in, in a situation where you had to. You know? So I, I kind of policed myself into the military because there was no other option. Was I saw my death coming. You know, they, my old man used to say to me, when you see your death coming, man, you got to step off the track. If you don't step off the track, the train comes, you're done. So I realized that I had to make a choice or else you know, I wasn't going to make it. So the military definitely helped you know, keep me in line and helped save my life. Yeah, you hear a lot about that, like people popping into the military to kind of straighten things out, you know what I mean? You said you became a part of the police force after or before? When I joined, when I joined, uh, when I went to boot camp, yeah. after I graduated boot camp, they asked if any, if any of you, any of us wanted to do a special training, special ops or overseas type stuff, and I, I, I volunteered, and so uh, they... Uh, you know, they chose me, and so I went to the Aleutian Islands. There was back in the day during the Cold War. War, the theory was that if the Russians came, invaded the United States in the lower forty-eight, they would come down through the Aleutian Islands. So there was all these visiting posts up by near Siberia, these little islands that jut out in the Bering Sea below the Strait, the Bering Strait. And one of these islands was called Ada, and there were Marines up there. There were UDT SEALs. We had us with the dogs, so and there was uh, there was an air base or P three planes that would track Russian submarines. Uh, we play like war games, you know. So like if we pretend, you know, the seals would come try to infiltrate the island, we you know track them with the dogs and stuff. So I did that for a couple of years. Then I went to um, to Lackland Air Force Base to get certified. So they sent me to the Aleutian Islands first. I joined the security force. I volunteered to be to work with the, uh, what they called narcotics interdiction team with the canine. So the dogs were attack dogs and they were drug specific dogs. So they flew me and the, the, the German shepherd, his name was King, was half Doberman, half shepherd. They flew us to Lackland Air Force Base for a seven week certification course. So I got certified. Then they flew me and the dog back to the Aleutians. So I spent a, you know, a couple of years up there. I dig that. So when you got back and you, 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 at what point did you kick back into the, like the acting, you know what I mean? Gear, the gear of acting. When I was in the military, I stayed in touch with a teacher, uh, acting teacher, became a very close friend of mine. And uh, I talked to him, you know, when I come home on leave, I'd hang out with him and talk and stuff. He was always kind of um, reminding me in his own, you know, kind of charismatic way to not forget the other side of myself. Like, you know, he understood what I needed to do to get straight. He also realized that I had, I guess, an ability that I was kind of, he didn't want me to forget that there was something else going on that I needed to continue to cultivate. So when I got out of the military, I reconnected with my teacher because, like I said, we were in touch. And then I started studying with him privately. 
um, I started going on auditions in New York and my acting teacher at the time who I was friends with was friends with a guy named David Heislip at the actor studio in New York City back in the, uh, in the late eighties before it was like a television show, which is, you know, the actor studio. A lot of well-known uh, actors were there and would study. This is after Lee Strasberg passed away, but there was still a community of very celebrated, talented actors like Shelley Winters, Ellen Burstyn, Robert De Niro, Harvey Cattell. They would all go to the studio. I saw Christopher walk in there. And so the deal was, is I would go to the actor studio. I would like paint the bathrooms, clean up. I do all this grunt work to earn uh, points. They give you these like uh, these little slips so that you and you basically sit. You couldn't talk. They call it the working observer program. You weren't a, a member of the studio. You got to sit in and watch members of the studio do monologues, do scene study, and watch these great actors. You know, basically critique the scenes. So wow. it's amazing to me. Like you know, less than a year out of the Navy, here I am at the actor studio watching these iconic actors perform on stage at the actor studio and listening to other actors basically give them notes on their scenes. So between that, studying my teacher privately and going on auditions, man, I started to really uh, understand the mechanism creatively and what was required of me in terms of, you know, uh, getting jobs and stuff. Yeah. It was like Goodwill hunting, good Robert hunting a little bit over there. Pretty much, <laughs> like yeah. That. That's cool. That's cool to be able to see those actors in the workshop, like legendary actors of their time, you know what I mean? Yeah. And going back and forth. And I know De, De Niro's real quiet when like he's not acting, I heard, you know what I mean? Uh, did you get, did, what, did you get any like, any vibes of them when they're, that, when they were down yeah. on stage, you know what I mean? Like yeah, with, with yeah, Hard to Tight Town? I have a story for you. Um, yeah. Two stories. Uh, once there was, there was this actor on stage. I don't know if he was doing a monologue. Yeah, he was doing a monologue. And after he finished the monologue, uh, he, uh, I guess the moderator, you know, the, the appropriate term, she asked him some questions about what, you know, about what he was doing, what he felt, you know, what, what did he discover, you know, and what did he feel about what he had just communicated. He was kind of, you could tell, he was a little bit nervous and wasn't able to switch into analytical mind and give her the explanation or communicate in uh, any kind of any any thoughts that uh, I guess were hearing enough for her, so she got frustrated. And after a while, it must seem like she was berating him and accusing him of lying in a way. She was saying, "Well, so then basically everything you just said to us was just some kind of rehearsed hogwash that meant nothing to you. You don't have any feelings about what you've just done." And she went on to do this with him for a while. You could tell the guy was like dying a thousand deaths up there yeah. because he couldn't put into words. What he had experienced. Sometimes, you know, you can have a profound experience on stage, but not necessarily go right into, you know, uh, objective thinking and say, well, this is how I feel about it. It's, it's beyond words. And so I think that's what was happening. And Robert De Niro was there and he, he said, he said, can I say something, please? And everybody turned around and he, he, he rebuked the moderator. He said, listen, I think what you're doing right now is dangerous and harmful. He experienced something. It was real to him. And uh, that's it. You know, if he can't put it into words, man, that's fine. But he was brave enough to stand up there and communicate something to the best of his ability, leave it alone. And then she got quiet after that. And she says, okay, does anybody else have anything to say? So it was interesting to see him cue in like that and come to this guy's rescue. Because I found at times at the studio, there was almost this mercenary 
type of approach to actors who are members where other actors would really like heavy judgment and like, they would come down on the critique really hard and I understand that because I was in camp I get it you, gotta, you, know, you have to have some thick skin to handle assessment so you can be better but sometimes man it just it just seemed like downright abuse there was another time where there was another actor he was performing and Christopher Walken was sitting and he was moderating and the guy said he looked at the audience and basically said some I called the audience he used the Fan, he said, and you MFs, you MFs, you MFs. And uh, Christopher stood up and he, he stopped the guy and looked at him and said, Listen, you got to be careful when you start looking at your audience and, and calling them, you know, mother. And he just walked out and the guy just stood there, you know, like in his birthday suit, like, see all the blood drained out of him, man. He thought, <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I think I just... And then Christopher Walken came back in and he looked at him and said, It's okay. You know, I love you, right? And he sat back down. He said, continue. But he just gave the guy a warning. He said, look, I know you're trying to make a political statement here. And, you know, this racial thing. You know, he was going on with this, uh, this, uh, this kind of metaphor type, you know, uh, symbolism about something that had some kind of racial inclinations. And, but the way he presented it was very aggressive. Yeah. And, uh, like I said, I don't think Mr. Walker appreciated it. Uh, so that's my, those are my two stories at the studio. <laughs> I dig both those stories. That walking, walking story, uh, I like how he left the room because they really put fear in the guy, you know, let him know that this is real. And then he come back, he kind of saved the day and told me he loved him. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, well, I know. You get, sometimes you got to get put in check. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. That's, that's a big part of it. Yeah. Sooner or later. <laughs> Um, I know you're the first credit did you, on there is uh, China Girl with the great Abel Ferreira. Since we had Christopher Walken talk, and they're they're very close. They've done a few films. You you yeah. also were in uh, King of New York with with both of Fer, uh, Abel and Walken. Now, how did uh, China Girl come about? Your involvement with that? I auditioned. That's uh, it. Forget the I auditioned for China Girl. Uh, I forget who was casting. She's the casting director of the cast. I love it. Abel's movie, so I came in, I read, and uh, they liked my read, they liked my audition, and they uh, thought my look was appropriate for the role. And then uh, I guess, you know, uh, Abel remembered me for the other film, The King of New York. He also thought that I would be appropriate for that character and what he was, you know, trying to communicate in that story. Was Abel at the audition? No. Uh, do you remember uh, your first, time, the first time? It was the first time I went to China Girl. It was just the, the casting director. There was a video camera, and then I met Abel on the set of China Girl. We talked, and then uh, after that, I, King of New York. I just got the offer. They called me. They said we want Robert for this role. So yeah, we we love Abel here at the Boombaster cast. Do you uh, do you remember your first impression of him or that first convo with him? Yeah, my impression is that he was, that is still, and was a fearless filmmaker. He's fearless. He's yeah. not afraid to communicate what he feels is relevant, regardless of what form it takes. You see, a bad intent. That's this evidence in there that he's not afraid to pull his punches in terms of never demons that his 
characters are battling with, or whatever the allegory is in the story. However, he needs to communicate the symbolism of that, uh, even if it's if it's graphic or it, it has meaning. So if you look at it, just look at it, you say, well, this is this is insane, this is barbaric. But if you listen to the words and observe the narrative and the way he writes, his, his writers construct these stories. It's not uh, it's not uh, gratuitous. It's just it, it, everything is calculated and has meaning. And life is not always pretty. And I love his approach to showing the, you know, that's the shadow aspect of humanity's struggle to transcend itself in various situations, whether it be vampire themes, whether it be uh, stuff to do with the church or the or corruption of police officers, whether it has to do with organized crime. He has this knack of showing this, uh, this side of humanity, this, this aspect of, of the, conflict, the spiritual conflict within man that is very, uh, very real, I think. And not everybody, and, and not everybody finds that style palpable, you know, palatable because it's, it's, you know, he's not afraid to throw it in your face and say, look right. at this, you know, but there's meaning behind it. He doesn't just throw the blood at, at you or, or construct a situation of violence or rape or whatever it is. Just, just for the glorification of violence, there's something connected to it that yeah. is greater than the act itself. The act itself is just a symptom of a problem that the characters are struggling with. And, and ultimately, I think that's what he's always trying to convey in his stories, you know, struggle between spirit, the flesh, you know, um, the, you know, man's continuous attempt to find equanimity, you know, to find balance and how man can get out of balance, you know, whether it's ego trips, you know, they're on, he did a movie called, uh, it was originally called Snake Eyes with Madonna and James Russo and a lot, had a lot to do with the behind the scenes, uh, narcissism that occurs with actors and their struggle to utilize their personal life, translate the catharsis into the work and how that can be amazing, but it also can be the nation of their lives. So he wasn't afraid to go really deep into an assortment of, um, of storylines that expose things. Mm. So he's incredibly courageous uh, you know, filmmaker in that sense. Yeah, he's the master of telling stories about like tortured souls. I think he's kind yes. of a little... He's kind of a little bit of a tortured soul himself, you know what I mean? Yeah, clearly. He knows uh, the subject. He knows yeah. the subject, there's no doubt about it. He's yeah. very familiar with his own subject. Yeah, a true auteur. He's a true artist, you know what I mean? I know his last yeah. couple films didn't come out in the States because he refused to cut them for the ratings board, which is, that's that's gangster. That's like, when you get a thing, like true film like Crusader people that are trying to keep it as pure as what it needs to be, he's right up there with it. We always like to give him respect, you know what I mean? He's the man. And Nicholas St. John, I believe, was a collaborator, his writer. Um, yes. They did a lot of his masterpieces they did together, and they would, they just worked so well together. And when you're talking about the writing, it was just really uh, top-notch, man. Yeah. yeah. We love Abel. We love Abel. We're going to try and get Abel on the show one of these days. We'll see. Um, so I track him down. Yeah, he's down. So, um, the the next film is a film that I re- the, I remember seeing you for the first time in this next film, which is the the, the doesn't a, a film that is 
I love it to death. It should be considered a higher up there on Richard Pryor's uh, filmology. Moving. I love moving. I think moving's one of his best films, period. You know what I mean? Um, how, how'd that come about? Uh, I auditioned. You know, it was a series like, like any other, uh, you know, the, any other day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I got a call. Uh, we have this audition for you. So I went in. Long story short. I got to the first phase of auditions and I met with Marion Dart, who was the vice president of Cats, Cats and Glenn Daniels, who was the head of casting back in those days at Time Warner over there in Rockefeller Center. So I got to the second phase of the audition. I met with her. I read for her. They called me back. Um, and I waited. And then I was told that the producers, Alan Metter, the director, the director back to school and out and, and, uh, Stuart Corn. Stuart Kornfeld? Yeah, Stuart Kornfeld, who went on to produce a lot of the Ben Stiller movies like Tropic Thunder. They were both going to fly in from the West Coast to meet with him. They wanted to see several actors that were, you know, from the top four contention for consideration for that role. I thought, holy shit. <laughs> um, so I went in, I met with Alan Metter, and I read for Stuart Kornfeld, and Stuart Kornfeld was in the room, and I left, and I waited. It was the longest two weeks of my life, man. And then I got a call from the agency saying, hey, guess who's going to Hollywood? I'm like, oh, you. So they offered me the role. And uh, so I flew out to Los Angeles on the contract with three months with Warner Brothers. And uh, I met Richard. I sat at the college table with Dana Carvey, Richard Pryor, Randy Quaid, uh, assortment of people that were very well known in the industry at that time and still now. And it was terrifying. <laughs> it was terrifying. It was exciting and fantastic. And it's like, be careful what you wish for. Here I am a year out of the Navy and I'm sitting at this table and I'm trying to pinch myself. This isn't really happening, but it was. So it was beautiful, man. So we did a read through and uh, Richard was really kind to me. Uh, he invited me over to his house one day. He said, Rob, we were on set filming. He came over and said, Robert, what are you doing next week? And, just hanging out at the hotel. Do you want to come over to my house and watch the Sugar Egg Agonfights? So he had his driver. He's his personal assistant, a couple of friends, watching the fight. Hell yeah. Who does that? I mean, it's been my experience, and I'm not trying to dog any celebrities but or living legends, but you know they don't necessarily call you up and invite you over for dinner or to watch a movie. So that was first and probably the last of an experience I will remember for the rest of my life. I've never had my bed again. So kind and supportive. I whispered something in my ear that I needed to hear. Because there was so much, even with the success of that job, there was still negativity. There's always envy and negativity around you. Even your own agency doesn't realize what you've, what you've embarked on. And uh, I remember Steve Kornfeld came up to me uh, one day before we get ready to shoot a scene. He said, Robert, listen, I don't want to get into business or anything, but I don't know if your agent realizes your ability, how talented you are. And I didn't understand why he came up to me and said that, because he said he came up to me twice. And now in retrospect, what I realized is, because I was very green, I didn't know anything, my agent was offered, we were offered a three-picture deal because they were so impressed what I did in that film. That Marion Doherty, all of them, like, you know what, let's offer Robert a big picture deal. And, uh, they proposed that to the agent. He turned it down. Hmm. And his reasoning was, well, Robert, if you, if you lock yourself into a deal with Warner Brothers, then you're not going to be able to compete for other stuff in New York. 
So I got back to New York. You know what I was competing for? Thug number one, skinhead. <laughs> These ridiculous, you know, uh, stereotypical characters where Warner Brothers wanted to groom me. Hmm. For things like Lost Boys and movies that were coming up that they thought I would be perfectly suited for because they didn't care about the tattoo. They said, don't worry about that. Keep your shirt on. We'll figure out a way to write something that communicates your ability and transcends because at that point I hadn't, you know, tattooed my neck or anything. They saw the possibility of, of my, my ability. They saw the potential of my ability and they wanted to run with it. The agent stood in the way. And because I was so naive, I really believed that what he said was, you know, Correct and true. Now, in retrospect, who, who turns down a free picture deal with Warner Brothers? Right. You've got to be out of your mind. <laughs> exactly. You live and you learn. But the good news is, though, it marks at a point in my life that despite, you know, those people that were clearly um, incoherent in terms of opportunity, it still marked a time for me that showed me what was possible. You know, and, 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 and lit a fire under me to keep going regardless of some of the nefarious practices that I had to deal with in terms of management. I, you know, let myself guide the way and not let others influence me based on their perception because they got a lot of it wrong. The same people said, well, actors don't have tattoos and you're never going to be able to be in a movie or you'll always, you know, you'll never do this. You know, all the, all the, you know, the course of doom and failure, you, know, you just kind of tune them out after a while. And sometimes it's your own, your own so-called brethren, your, your so-called actor friends or yeah. so-called family members that stand in the way of possibility when they forget that there was a time in your life that you were going to go to prison and you turn your life around and do the impossible and rather than be rewarded for it, they're ready to shoot you. <laughs> it's funny how that works. So I realized quickly that I have to Stay on my course, not listen to anyone. And I would suggest that to anybody who has ambition and wants to pursue a career, that uh, the only voice you should listen to is your own that suggests a limitless possibilities and be motivated by your passion and love for what you like to do and what you're driven to do. And anybody who does not understand that or tries to minimize it, don't run from them or just put the earplugs in and don't pay attention. No matter what form it takes, let not the form deceive you. It's right. amazing. It's, you know, I think there's certain people that would be the ones that would be most excited for you come with the bad, the so-called bad news to keep you grounded. They said but it has nothing to do with keeping keep you grounded. Everything to do with diminishing um, your efforts and what you achieve. So you got to be mindful of that with every step that you take. Yeah. Yeah, there's a weird deal there, you know. There's uh there's a couple quotes that come to mind. It's um you know, pe- one of them's like, you know, the people around you can't when when you start to gain success, they can't kind of they can't they can't contemplate the fact that you guys came from the same place. You know what I mean? So like they get how high is he excelling and I'm not. And that they get like a weird jealousy hatred over that. Which is, uh, you know, it's unfortunate, rather. And then the other one is like, we do into me and Hawkman over here do indie, indie films. You know what I mean? And it's kind of weird that you'll be trying to do something positive, and everybody will know what you're doing, but you don't really get get their support, which is weird. And it's um, somebody said once, it's like you know, people, the people closest to you won't show you support until strangers show them that they're you're worthy of their support, which is kind of a weird thing, but it, it ranges true. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it, Unfortunately. Yeah, there's two, 
Yeah, yeah. There's two things that occur to me real quickly. It's kind of like the, the feeding frenzy uh, uh, phenomenon. If you put several people in a room and you starve them and you throw a loaf of bread at them, what happens? You know, they rip it up. You know, some people kill kill the other person. You know, so it's kind of like that with work. You know, feeding frenzy uh, phenomenon uh, create. It's a. It, it's not. A, it's not a track. It's a track and field. Event. It's not a team sport. So yeah. it's kind of every every person for themselves, unfortunately, and that doesn't always conducive to the team spirit. We're all in this together, brother, sister. You know, it's how can I kill my brother? Get him out of the way. So yeah. I don't subscribe to that thinking because I've been, I've witnessed and learned that it doesn't, it's just really, it's a dark place to live. Um, the other scenario that comes to mind, I don't know, are you guys familiar with a filmmaker named John Cassavetes? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He made a movie called Killing of a Chinese Bookie with Ben Gazzara. And Ben Gazzara owes the mob a lot of money. So he makes a deal with them that if he kills the scum, that they'll let, you know, they'll, they'll wash the debt. So he says, okay, who do I have to kill? This guy is this Asian dude. Here's his house. Here's the address. So he goes there and he, he slips to the security and he actually gets the guy. He pops. He comes back. He tells the mafios. So I did it. And they're like, they're shocked that he was able to, that, to do it. And so see, you know who they asked me, you know who he killed? The guy he told me to kill. No, no, but you know who he was? He was like the main leader of the triad or some like Asian mafia. He's like the most powerful mafia guy in this you know, Asian organized crime syndicate. And he said, we didn't think that you were going to be able to pull it off. We kind of sent you on a suicide mission. Now that you did that, it's going to start a war. Now we got to kill you. Eesh. And I never forgot that because that's kind of how it is with entertainment. Yeah. You win the day, do, they send you out on the mission, you come back, you're like, you're not, you weren't supposed to come back. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I always think of this. And that was yeah. comes to family and friends. Like, you weren't supposed to win. We're counting on you to lose so we could say, you know, so you could sit in the bin of mediocrity with the rest of us. And we can, you know, so the same people are telling you to be successful and stay out of jail are the same people that are going to rebuke you when you do what they ask you to do. They don't expect you to pull it off. Maybe some family dynamics and situations, there are those people that are actually truly happy for those people they knew we're on a, on a path that was destructive and, and can convey that appreciation how they turn their life on. I don't know what that's like. I haven't had that experience. I'm so recently I have people in my life that are very supportive, but coming up and um, it wasn't like that. And I'm not bitter over it. It's just, I, I learned a lot. And when people talk to me and they want, they, they ask me questions, I just warn them about situations like that. So they don't, they're not dissuaded from their dreams that they, mm-hmm go forward regardless of whatever rhetoric is being aimed at them. Yeah, I mean, it was unfortunate, like what you were saying with that agent, that three-picture deal, and like you think that those are the people that are on your team, but who, who's to say what's going on behind the scenes there? Maybe they're trying to land another deal. Maybe, like you said, they were telling you the whole time, okay, the tattoos are bad, they're bad, and they don't want to be proven wrong by you getting it so they blow the deal for you. It's kind of a really fucking weird deal, but yeah, it sucks. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I, I, man. Yeah, I mean, one well, of the things... It's all good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's in the past. It's in the past. <laughs> it's all good, man. But, I mean, one of the things, I mean, going back with what you're saying about, you know, unfortunately with the entertainment industry where, you know, yeah, everyone's starving, you throw a loaf of bread, everyone tears each other apart. But, I mean, one of the things that 
blows my mind is that if they're intelligent, I mean, to make a successful, whether we're talking about TV series, whether we're talking about movie or anything, you need to work together as a team. I mean, you can have a movie that has a huge star, for example, like Tom Cruise, but if you don't have people supporting him to make it a good movie, then, you know, it's not going to work. You can't just... I mean, everyone has to work together to make art, in my opinion. That's one of the reasons why I love making movies, love making TV, is because you have so many different people from... I mean, you got visual arts people, you got, you know, audio, everyone working together and make a great product. And and I always think that when you let that kind of, um, you know, starvation, you know, it's me or the other guy kind of mentality, that just tears down the art. I mean, you got to... I always consider it, a, 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 it has to be... You have to attack it as a group effort, otherwise it's not going to succeed. There's so many films and stuff that's out right now that you're watching it and you're like, why am I watching it? it it's Everyone seems like, you know, they're at war with each other and you're not making a good product. And I mean, like I said, I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I always find exasperating when you're trying to, I mean, I always believe that you got, to build each other up to succeed in in making something that's worthwhile for an audience. Yeah. And this this backstabbing, this, you know, it's me or the other guy kind of mentality just drives me insane. <laughs> and and this is at all parts, even when we're talking about just independent, uh, you know, films that we're shooting in a backyard that someone's always like, no, 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 we... Uh, I can't have them uh, do that. They're looking better than me. I mean, I want to be the one that's picked out of mediocrity. But if we work together, then we can all rise up. We can all, you know, become better. I mean, that's that's the way I've always been looking at it. Yeah, it communicates. Makes sense to me. That's why I feel like uh, independent films are safe haven. A lot of the time, maybe not always, but ideally. It is a collaborative effort, collaboration, and I'm fortunate to have experience that demonstrate that. So yeah, it, it can, it is possible. It's not all doom and gloom. I mean, there are situations I've experienced that suggest what you said regarding the idea of, you know, we're all in this together. Let's make it great. Uh, let's build a house. Right? We're all building a house together. Everyone has their expertise. So uh, there's no one person that needs to be glorified because at the end of the day, the audience is just looking at the house. So let's just do our jobs, build the house correctly, so the house can stand. So we all kind of stand together and just say, "Man, Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I'm with that. Well, next up we have Short Circuit Two. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Classic, another one I remember you from. My only question for that is, what was it like to work with Johnny Five? You know, mainly for the technical aspect of it. Because I know it was a special effect. Was this? Was was it? Was there any breakdowns on it? Was it pretty smooth? Was you know the actual machinery of Johnny Five? What I remember about that experience is that there were some issues technically. 
<clears throat> I had it come back and do reshoots. And I was fantastic because they shot that in Canada. I think it was Toronto. I don't quote I think it was Toronto. Yeah. Um, so we shot some stuff and we got to come back and I made quite a bit of money. <laughs> I was showing, that was a nice payday because I needed the money because New York, living in New York back in those days was not cheap. It's not cheap now either. It wasn't cheap then. It's never cheap. Um, so yeah, it was a very profitable experience for me and it was fun. You know, everybody had to seem to be having a good time. And, you know, I, I couldn't really, uh, I, I wasn't, had, wasn't familiar with the film. Serious. I had seen the first one, so I had no frame of reference for Robot. I, didn't, I saw it, and I thought it was kind of interesting. I, yeah. I looked at it, and I played off of it, and it was fun to do that. But um, outside of that, you know, I don't really remember much, except that it was, you know, it was one of those kind of experiences that was rather quick. Very, I didn't realize it was going to get that kind of visibility. Mm. But, you know, I didn't realize it was going to become this thing that it's become. Um, it was just another project. That I was treated well, and actors that I worked with, you know, some one of them I became friends with, and it's just an overall good experience. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I know those practical effects nowadays they just CGI the whole Johnny Five in there, but those <laughs> practical effects yeah. would be yeah. yeah, a lot of hurry up and wait. It's already hurry up and wait on set, but it's just more so <laughs> like it's almost stop motion animation sometimes with some of those bigger things. Yeah. And uh, he was on the, on the streets of New York City, you know what I mean? Making things more complicated. Sure. But, now, that was a huge, that being a children's movie, would you think that was probably like one of the, bi- the biggest pop at that time of movie coming out to theaters type, so to speak? I know Pryor had moving, but um, I, I assume a children's movie is, is the only thing that could rival a comedy, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I had a friend of mine who was flying overseas said that he saw... I was watching you on the plane, and, and, and they dubbed you into Spanish. So yeah, the, the scope of the thing was, I guess, what's the word that they use? Everybody uses. Oh, it was huge. Huge. Yeah, the scope was huge. Yeah. So I don't like. I don't talk in the language of math very much. But like that, I like to assess art that way. Not a banker. But uh, yeah, I guess there was a lot of eyeballs in that thing. Yeah. A lot. There, apparently there, it still resonates to this day. Sure. Remember it, so it must it must have made some kind of uh, impact in the collective oversoul, the psyche of people. Maybe there's an innocence to it that we don't see that much anymore. That people have a nostalgia for it because it points to a time in history of filmmaking where movies were different. Yeah, yeah. It was on the crust. You know, the motivation to make movies. I remember I was talking to I drop names, but I was a huge fan of Burt Reynolds and I got to meet him before he passed away and he rest in peace and he was so sweet to me and we talked and we talked about films and he made that comment about yeah it's the, it's you know it, the, it's the reasoning behind them you know, has changed it's, it's been making them for all the wrong reasons Yeah, I think that back in the day there was more. There was they were definitely trying to make money, but there were there was still an art form to it. You know what I mean? Now it's more yeah. of just let's make up money. Yeah, well, the creative influence worked in conjunction with the money. Yeah, and Ellen Burstyn mentioned this in the interview she did many years ago. She said, "Yeah, they're slowly diminishing the creative element, and moving it out of the way, so that the corporate can kind of step in and manipulate the uh, the algorithms and you know the 
the visual aesthetic and turn it to more of a pornography rather than an art form to sell cultic personality, sell various isms, you know, cult of, because it's a visual medium, right? So over the years, I've noticed characters have gotten younger and younger and younger, you know. Whereas back in the day, the leading man could tell was a leading man because he had been through something. They were older and they were seasoned. They had life experience. And they, you know, they were handsome, but they weren't like pretty or anything. They kind of changed that model somewhat yeah. to play to a youth oriented market that's obsessed with, you know, appearance and being young, pretty. And they build a house. Or go, they, they work from the outside in rather than from the inside out. They're focusing on how things look rather than what motivates them to convey something with the appearance that suggests something that has more meaning. They rely heavily on the visual aesthetic rather than the interior life of the character. Not always, because there's some movies that are being made still, independent films, and I guess some studio stuff that suggests the opposite. There's still people out there that refuse to, you know, throw the craft away. Yeah. And still believe in good storytelling, character development, and allowing those characters to breathe and resonate in a way that affects audiences. If the audiences can pay enough of attention span to allow that to happen. You know, a lot of people, they're training people, I think, also to have more of a thrill-ride experience through sound, visual uh, gimmicks to stimulate the mind and the eye and the ears to have more like a theme park movie rather than real people experiencing extraordinary things and having catharsis and, you know, facing personal challenges. I've always loved personal stories that, that deal with humanity. I understand that there's a need for escapism. So, you know, going off into outer space or these end of the world themes provoke uh, audiences into extreme dispositions of emotion so they can feel something. So I understand that phenomenon as well. Um, so that's just where we're at right now. But I'm glad there's still something to counterbalance it. You know? Yeah. There's, the art is still there. There's evidence that the art is clearly still there. Yeah. Despite the attempt to, you know, said, gloss over that, make everything, you know, the same. It'll, I think it'll return. I think it'll return to more personal films. We'll get so, worn out i think on all these big blockbuster superhero movies and you know natural disaster movies which don't get me wrong i love a good natural disaster movie but i I think it will return to more personal you know in the indie in the indie world that's kind of what's reigning supreme is the personal films that can kind of touch everybody in a personal way um i think the kind of hollywood's just become what it's always wanted to be is just that big money-making thing that, that pumps out these multi-billion dollar you know summer blockbusters and the indies will always have our little home you know what i mean um but i think it'll cross over more i'm hoping in the future we have this argument with people all the time it's like you could take you could take an independent film you know what i mean and put it in the same theaters in the same time slot as one of these other films that are mainstream films and you'd probably do just about the same amount of money because it's a lot of what's interesting and what people just, they just want to go. Nowadays, a lot of it's just movies are something to do. It's like, what are we going to do? We're going to go see a movie. What are we going to see? We'll figure it out when we get there. You know what I mean? 
Uh, it's not so much they're being drawn to the theater anymore, pulled to the theater, um, unfortunately. But like theaters like AMC and stuff, they do they'll they'll screen a lot of like indie films, which is cool. I can appreciate that. That's good to know. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what are some of your favorite movies? If you're gonna chill out and try and watch a movie. Uh, recently, my my latest favorite is a film called Flashback, starring Micah Monroe. It's a kind of this. How to describe it? It's a, I guess the category would be suspense thriller, but yeah, it, it's um it's about a guy who's living a conventional life. He's got a girlfriend, but flashes back to a time in his life where he knew this girl who kind of blew his mind because of her philosophies and. They were experiencing, experimenting with this drug called mercury. And at the pivotal point in his life, when he's starting to kind of solidify or cement himself into the matrix of a, a life with a corporate job and a wife, he takes a pause and he reflects on a part of his life that suggests something opposite of that. But that where he was going seemed okay based on conventional standards, but he started to rethink it and go, wait a minute. Is this maybe a prison to? Because there was a creative side of himself that he felt was being compromised and he was reflecting back on this time with this girl. And so the movie kind of manipulates the timeline, the present and the past. And he revisits that time of his life when he was under the influence of the drug and what the girl said to him and how she blew his mind to recognize the matrix and not to become trapped. So I just find this movie to be incredibly layered and extremely highbrow entertainment um, in terms of the human psyche. And, and so that's been one of my favorites. It's called Flashback. And then uh, what are some of the good a list of films that uh, I enjoy? Badlands, Ter- Terrence Malick's Badlands, which is yeah. space act, and Martin Sheen is one of my favorite all-time movies. Um, in terms of horror, uh, I would say The Exorcist. Classic. Still to this day is... Incredible film. William Friedkin yeah. is a genius. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, action adventure, you know, the old school stuff, I would say, a side adventure. Shelley Winters, Red Buttons, Ernest Borgnine, Gene Hackman, that won like, I don't know, how many Academy Awards. That to me, to this day, is still an amazing film because it's not just a disaster movie, it's, a, right. it's an allegory about yeah. the enemy being flipped over and having to basically, you know, what is it Milton saying? Paradise lost, long is the way and hard, but out of hell leads up to light. Up to light. So the ship is hit with a tidal wave, turns upside down, and this priest, played by Gene Hackman, is trying to convince everybody the boat is turned upside down, meaning our world is turned upside down. The only way out is through the bottom. you got to go this way. And they all say, no, we have to stay here and wait for help. He said, there's no help coming. There's no vicarious atonement. No one's coming to save us. We have to save ourselves and climb our way out of this hell to get to the top. And maybe, just maybe, someone will lift us up and will meet us halfway and take us out of this place. And so the film, I think, based on the writing, the way it communicates these allegories and themes, is very spiritual, if you look at it closely. And uh, I think the fight and concept arguments between Gene Hackman's character and Ernest Borgnine, who's like the Judas who keeps challenging the yeah. Jesus archetype and saying, no, we're taking us the wrong way. How many people have to die before you to, you know, for us to stick to your mission? You're going to get us all killed, you know? So I, I just found it to be a really profound film. And the other movie that stands out is Lucas's Miracle Graffiti. Mm. 
That's mm-hmm. one of my all-time favorites. The cars, the music. Nice. There's, there's an innocence to that film that you just don't see anymore. You know, I mean, The Fast and the Furious, I know it's this huge franchise. I only saw the first one, but American Graffiti captures a time in history in the early 60s with the music, the cars, you know, this love affair with Americana that just is gone. Yeah. So I love watching this film because it's like stepping into a, a time portal and it's just incredible. And the, and, and the climactic ending with the race between John Miller and uh, Falfa, played by Harrison Ford, man. I always love when they race at the end, that yellow deuce coupe and that 55 Chevy on that long drag at the end with Cindy Williams sitting next to Harrison Ford. And, and John was like, what the hell are you doing in there? Is she going with you? Because she's going to sit in the car while they race. And he's worried that she's going to get killed. You know, he's got Rex's car and she never does. <clears throat> so, yeah, those, those are the films that come to mind. Yeah. What about you? Oh, we like it all. Uh, you know, Taxi man. Driver, The Shining, classics. Oh, man. I mean, if it's funny. Whenever anyone asks me, like, what's your favorite movie? I'm always like, Geez, are we talking about genre? Are we talking yeah. about time period? Yeah. Are we talking <laughs> because I mean, I can I can tell you like my favorite movie, and tomorrow I can be like, oh man, I should have thought of this one. This one's sure. even better. Yeah, but that's because Alex, because you're a film historian, like sure. the rest of us, we're film well, historians. I, I mean, we're not, I, you know, we pay attention. We catalog. Well, not everybody I mean, does that. Some people, yeah. you know, they just want fast food entertainment. They eat, they go, and they leave. They don't remember. Yeah. I think you know, because you have this love affair, and so do I with film. You remember these things. Not everybody makes it a point uh, to make it a case study and have all these catalogs in their mind. And you have so much information; it's not always easily accessible, but it's there. Oh, yeah. you know it. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it's it's funny because, and I I always have have one one movie I always always put out as my favorite, and. And and it is the Princess Bride. Now, the main reason is because it's one of those movies I can watch constantly, not get tired of it. I can always quote it, and 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 you know it's it's a big part of my life. I mean, I I I remember watching when it came out, and to this day, I still love it. I love everything. <laughs> and uh, I mean. The thing is that I, I remember, you know, I'd be working and I'd be bumping into like a new employee and they're like, hey, I heard you like movies. Like, I'm a big film buff myself. I'm like, okay, so what, what's your favorite movie? They're like, oh, the best movie of all time, Transformers. And, and I'm like, okay, so um, name a movie that you watched from the 80s, the 70s, 60s, 50s, 40s, 30s. And they're like, what this? Those are old movies. Why? Why would I watch those? I mean, the movies coming out now—they're—they're they're, they're great. And I'm like, you can't call yourself a film buff if you don't know all movies, all genres. I mean, and you gotta watch solid movies. That would, uh, you know, Chaplin. And you gotta watch, you know, you know everything. Uh, because film noir, yeah, film noir. Yeah, film noir, and it's because you can't have an understanding of, for example, it's like with painting. You can't just say, "Oh, I love all 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 uh, portraits 
but only look at like the Mona Lisa. Say, oh, that's that's the best thing. Like, well, you know, what about you know, all these other great artists? I mean, you have to broaden your your mind. You have to broaden your experiences to have a greater understanding of the world around you. Yeah, ideally, yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. it seems the consumer's vision is very myopic. You know, like yeah. Cyclops, but it's myopic. Yeah. It, it, they only see what's put in front of them. They don't want to type the time to research because they're busy, they're working, and unfortunately, they're not going to go through catalogs and like a library and look and see what's available. They basically rely on media to tell them what to like. You're going to love this. The critics are raving about this, so they go to the obvious. And it takes work and efforts in a culture that's become kind of last lackadaisical to investigate the possibilities of other movies. If you become sick, literally sick spiritually or psychically and tired of the formula that's constantly being fed to you, like fast food, you start to become ill, then you get away from it. Your inclination is to find different forms of entertainment that inspire you. So you cannot help but do it. It's not like you're doing it to make a point or to be poor or be whatever, you're just doing it because your heart needs to be fed through the media that you know has demonstrated in the past that has the capability to change your state of consciousness. Art was designed to do that, to show people it's possible. And when it stops doing that, something's wrong. Then you know it becomes more like a pornography manipulation. And after a while, maybe once in a while, it's, it's nice to have fast food sandwich, or, but you can't sustain this. If you have any kind of depth of feel in terms of what you're requiring entertainment after a while it's not going to be enough they want more and then yeah. you start looking and I think yeah. that's beautiful when people start looking for things like there's still that left otherwise why would the independent film still be happening because people are watching it and it's not about how many I could care less about how many the fact that there's anybody left that still considers that is hopeful to because I mean, fast food might be great for the moment, but it has no no staying power, has no sustenance to you know keep you going. And I mean, I have to say, I give a lot of credit to my parents because I mean, when I was growing up in the eighties, that I mean, my uh, mom and dad would have me watch like uh, Abba Costello meets Frankenstein. They'd have me watch. Uh, you know, Catherine Happen movies, Spencer Tracy movies, uh, because, you know, my mom didn't, because a lot of stuff coming out in the 80s at the time, you don't want your young kid to see, you know, like, and I mean, I, I, I'll never forget, my biggest birthday of all time was when I turned 13, because then I could say, Mom, I can watch now a PG-13 movies, okay? So I wanted to blockbuster, I got as many as I could, like, okay, just just sit there and let me watch these. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's because, I mean, I just love, what I love about it is, is the telling of the stories and telling of the characters. I love interesting and unique characters and trying to find what motivates people. And I think that's very important. For sure. Yeah. And you brought up William Friedkin <clears throat> not too long ago. <clears throat> he's one of he's legendary. And I always give him credit for uh <clears throat> even his more modern films are like super super good. Like Bug uh was really good. And um Killer Joe, 
Killer Joe with Matthew McConaughey is a film that I wasn't expecting to be as great as it was. You know, I don't know why I wasn't, but it was really uh, Killer Joe was really good times. Sure. Who's tougher, Jean Claude Van Damme or Steven Seagal? I think Jean Claude has endured a lot. Yeah. Personal life. Um, yeah. So I think his interior life might suggest an ability to face and overcome things. Yeah. Um, personally. Uh, but in terms of fighting, I don't know. I mean, that's that's a tough one. I mean, in, in, in the early days, you know, when, when John Claude was at his peak in terms of his physicality, and uh, Stephen was, you know, at his peak in terms of his youth and being strong and agile and all that. That's a tough one, man. I don't know. Uh, I've watched John Claude do things with his legs that boxers can do with their fucking hands. He can throw <laughs> a kick so fast into your face, like the way a boxer snap a jab. <laughs> he can do that with his leg. So I would think that depending on the day, if Stephen Seagal wasn't prepared, the step with, and he wasn't able to maneuver around that. I mean, I guess it could go either way physically. You know, I, I've seen Jean Claude confront an actor who was not being respectful on set once. And I thought they were going to literally get into a fight for real, man. You know, the guy kind of backed away when he realized that Jean Claude had had enough. He had been through things prior to that movie that had brought him to a place, I think, where he had got tired of people testing him, mocking him. And he was like, okay, let's go then. And the guy, this I think it was a Russian guy, and it was a really strong, well-built man who conceded, he's like, sorry, because he realized in that moment that John Claude was ready, man. He said, fuck, let's go. Yeah. And the guy didn't want to fight him. So I thought, wow, look at that. Look at that. And I've witnessed Steven do some things, too, that were pretty uh, impressive. Uh, both were nice to me. Steven was really nice to me, and so was John Paul. They were both very honest with me about their feelings toward me when they met me. So I would not pit them against each other. I would just say that they, uh, in their time, even now, they, they figured out how to do something that's extremely effective. Yeah. To this day, yeah, I'm a big fan of both. I, unlike yeah. the Hawkman, my pair, it, it, you know, I when I was younger, I was getting as long as it was an action movie or a comedy, it didn't matter if it was rated R. You know what I mean? So like, I, they were renting it, and it was coming home when I was watching it. So those gentlemen, I loved to death. And uh, Jean Claude did a, a movie a couple of years ago called JCVD. JCVD, yeah, and that the intro is the best intro I've ever seen in an action movie ever. The, the opening to that movie is great. I love it. Good movie. All It, it was a wild movie because it kind of was like based off his real life, but not based off his real life. But it was like, anybody out there, rent it, go buy it just to watch that intro. That intro alone to that movie is great. It's like the ultimate action intro. It's right up there with Stone Cold. I love Stone Cold with Brian Bosworth and Lance Hendrickson. I consider that to be one of the ultimate guy movies of all time. And uh, the opening to JCVD is right there as well. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? 
And now you with King of New York, you said you got you they just they just, just reached out to you and brought you in? Yeah. Yeah. The um the you were in the scene, I believe, when Christopher Walken comes in and confronts the other dude that's kind of took an over for him. Am I right? Yes. And then he kill he kills him and then you join you join his you join up with him, right? Frank White. Uh, Christopher Walken plays a character. Frank White. Frank White. My boy Frank White. Yeah. He, he um, is with him. Uh, gets him the names of the other actors at the fourth group. Yeah. That's a classic movie. Walken is, uh, we've talked about, we talk about Walken almost all the time. He's just so great and uh, iconic. You know what I mean? He, what he does you talk about actors that there'll never be another one, you know, and we talk about Nicolas Cage a lot. There'll never be a Nicolas Cage. Like there'll never be another Christopher Walken. You know what I mean? He is that, you know, there'll be people trying to duplicate it. I'm sure. But, um, as far as being the man, they can't be, you know, but yeah, I love, I love all those Abel Ferreira movies. Hawkman. You like those Abel Ferreira movies? Of course, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan. I, I have to admit, um, I wanted to uh, ask you, uh, you played a reoccurring character on the series Nip Tuck. How did that uh, come about? And I mean, you were such an interesting character and probably one of the best parts of the series. I, I thank you. Um, I auditioned for, uh, for Ryan Murphy. I uh, went in for an audition against a bunch of other guys and uh, who's the other producer that was on? He was there. I'd worked for him before on a series called Philly, but I auditioned. And then uh, I got called back to audition again. And I got hired. Nice. And uh, I think when we did it, the first pilot, I don't, I don't think it was originally intended for the character to occur. I think what they saw was the potential of something that could be exploited. And so then they decided to bring the character back in the first season. And then when they killed, seemingly destroyed the character and seemed impossible in return, Ryan Murphy did the unthinkable, the unimaginable, figured out a character a storyline that would actually bring Escobar back to life. Amazing because my agents, everyone was convinced that was it. Even some of my friends, well, it was a good rock, good run while it lasted, Rob. <laughs> and then next thing I know, I get a call that they want to basically, you know, create the story where he doesn't just show up in as like monsters of the id and Sean Psyche, you know, the character who played the doctor. He's actually really going to come back. Not dreams, but so it just became this incredibly fortuitous opportunity to demonstrate something that I had been doing prior to in other shows, playing this kind of nefarious gangster type guy, Latino or whatever, drug lord. But it was just the platform which this character stood that was extraordinary because of the writing and how well put together the show was. So in that sense, I think the combination of elements that are necessary, you know, you bring your A game, and the people you're working with bring their A game. Everybody wins, I guess, in that regard. Sometimes you can do an amazing job on a show, but the show just isn't well received and doesn't go anywhere. So it's just luck of the draw that I met that opportunity that was greater than myself. You know, the show was greater than me. 
And that's, I think, what most artists hope for is an opportunity to work with people that can teach them something, to raise their levels. You know, the writers are, and directors and quality of the show challenge you to go beyond your own expectations. And then for whatever reason, you know, the, it, I guess based on public opinion, it, it's raised on the hierarchy of, uh, and, you know, of media. And everybody looks at it and goes, wow, look at that. But I didn't know. I was in Santa Monica one day sitting at Starbucks and I guess one of the CEOs of FX came on and said, I work, I'm such and such. I work, I'm da da da. And you've got some, wait till you see what's coming. You. I was like, I was like, is somebody going to shoot me? <laughs> you know, I didn't realize what it was, but basically she was saying in a very polite way, get ready. Your life's going to change. And she was right. At least in that time. In terms of my career. You know, there's, this is going to be a game changer. So yeah, so it was a good experience. Ryan was really nice. I used to talk to him a lot. We had these conversations. And I was good friends with the actors that played the doctors. You know, on set we talked. Yeah. They were very personable, very down to earth. You know, they weren't, I didn't seem affected by their station at all. Yeah. It was kind of nice and fresh to talk to people like that. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I mean, I really enjoyed, uh, uh, enjoyed your character on that and, and also, um, your character on, um, CSI Miami. I mean, both, both of them, I mean, playing bad guys, but I mean, yeah, I mean that that's one of the thing because we we've talked to a bunch of different actors that have been known for playing you know nefarious characters or bad guys and all that, but you know, what I always in, in, enjoy is when you know you're playing a, a but each each even though you're, you're a bad guy you're always different. There's always you're always giving it something more, so you can't say that the uh, the uh, character you're playing in Nip Tuck is the same as the character you're playing in CSI Miami, because there there's still bad guys, but there's always something more going on, which just brings you into it and 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 makes it makes great television, I think. Yeah, you know, it was a reunion for me, CSI, because David and I worked together on China. Yes. Yeah. So, you were talking about eight four-hour films, the genesis of filmography. David Russo, James Russo, played leads in stuff, and um, it was bizarre to revisit that relationship on NYPD and David And then he left that show, you know, some other shows that I worked on, and we ended up together in CSI <laughs> And uh, the producers were, were were open beside themselves because they couldn't understand what they were talking about. They actually came up and said, he talks to you. Well, yeah. Why? You guys produce the show. He's not talk to you. Oh, not really. So they, I could sense that they were intimidated by whatever reasons. I don't know. But uh, they, they said, what did you be able to talk about? He doesn't talk to anybody. Well, I said, I know David from the 80s. He did a bunch of movies together. And I, I understand David. His philosophies. He's a very uh, intelligent, insightful, um, thoughtful man who considers things that for some people might be seen, I don't know, 
existential or weird or crazy, but to me, it just everything he said made sense. We mm. were just, you know, it was wonderful working. We played off each other well and had this history. I think one of the reasons I was so sure is like, and we had, and the producers would say to me, every time we work with David's levels go up. Does really well each other. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that we felt very comfortable with each other. We knew each other's minds. He once directed me. The thing about David Caruso, you don't realize he's a great acting teacher too. I'd be in scene with him and say, Rob, let's do it. It's kind of like this. And he'd say, just talk. You know, now we're talking about just talk. Forget the lines. So he gave it, so with David, like, not only get to work opposite of him, but you get an acting class, you get paid. And you have a good time. So my experience with him is fantastic. Everybody else is tippy-toeing around him, afraid. And I was like, hey, what's up, David? I gave him a hug and talked to him. He was just like, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> it was bizarre, man. Like I said, I know it sounds redundant at this point. I'm like, well, you guys, you're the producers, man. I would yeah. think, you know, you guys would be, me- you know, meshed in tight. But they weren't. They were like, oh, they, were, they kept distance. Hmm. And so they were like amazed. The fact that he was so open that we have these pod- I remember when we were filming in Miami, I had to get, there was some kind of daytime Emmy Award thing going on, and I was doing a show bar at the time. I said, David, could you please talk to the producers and get out of here sooner? Because I don't want to miss, I was invited to the daytime Emmys. I really want to go. I said, sure. We just made it happen. Got me on a flight, pulled some strings, and boom, it just happened. So I think that next to Richard Fire, I think David is probably. Where? He's such a good guy and a great, great actor. As a fan, he's always came off like very easygoing, soft-spoken type yeah. dude. I, you know what I mean. I always figured to be a yes. Just, no BS uh, with David. No BS. No BS, uh, face. No BS with David, man. <laughs> yeah, that's, another, that's another name of the episode. No BS with David with Robert. <laughs> <laughs> he should have got Abel the job on the CSI Miami. Abel, I think the first thing Abel ever did was Miami Vice episodes. Yeah. But uh, Caruso is the best. Uh, Copland, Session 9, great horror yeah, movie that was shot that, locally. You mentioned that film. That also goes to the category some of one of my favorite films. Yeah. It deals with that subject in a way that most films don't deal with. This idea of a cult and uh, this idea of other realms influencing this one and affecting the human psyche to do things like the idea the devil made me do it. That film is brilliant in its ability to demonstrate the possibility of psychic influence invading the mind of the man who's susceptible to it and does something terrible. Uh, that movie is brilliant in its ability to communicate that subject. I've never seen a film other than The Innocence with Deborah Carr, black and white film with two children who are possessed by this entity and are being puppeted by this, uh, this, this evil force. But Session 9, whew. Yeah. The movie gave me chills. The it, ending, especially. Where, a, you, where did you went the ending where he says, where did you live, son? I live. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> And so I remember when I first yeah, stumbled into that flick, it's local. I think it's based out of like Connecticut or New Hampshire or something like that. Or Maine, maybe. Maybe it's Maine. It's somewhere local to us. We're East Coast people. And I remember yeah. when that came out, there was like, it, wa- it wasn't the best time for horror movies to be coming out. And that made it shine even more. You know what I mean? It's a great film. And I love the plot. 
of like, you know, going the, this group of people going into a, it was an old mental hospital or an old factory. To clean it, to clean it up. But I always thought that was such a great plot. I thought that was such a great plot for a horror movie of them having to go in like that whole deal. Cause it's realistic. I, I had a, I had a job for a period of time where with a construction team where we would go in and we would, uh, figure out if it was a, you could save the building or if it had to come down. And I always thought to myself, what a great horror movie would be, you know, you could build out of this, you know? Yeah. I, 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 I for my money, I, I see it more as a, uh, a psychological, yeah, psychological thrill because it's yeah. high brow. Uh, so tar tends to be leans heavily, some bar leans heavily on the apparatus of effects and mm-hmm. and visual violence. And the uh, session nine didn't need that. It got under your skin in the way the story unfolded and how it slowly built up the suspense and terrifying disposition. I felt uncomfortable watching it after a while. Yeah, to watch these men slowly start to go crazy. It was unsettling. So to me, it's it didn't need the, the gimmicks of physical violence and all that to communicate terror that happens when someone clearly is losing their mind and you indicate what they're capable of. You don't have to show it. You just indicate it. And in that sense, to me, it becomes highbrow. I think that sense the movie went over a lot of people's heads. Yeah. Because I had friends who were psychologists, psychiatrists, and laughed at them. Right? And I'm thinking, wow, I'd hate to be your patient, man. Yeah. If you can't understand the profundity of what's happening to this man, and you think that's funny, then you're the last person I want to give me meds or treat me for, you know, paranoia or bipolar disorder or all the assortment of, of you know, psychic disturbances that people experience, you know? So yeah. I saw the film just fly right over people's heads, man. They didn't quite get it. Yeah. Because it demands a lot from its audience to see more than what most people are trained I think it was Woody Allen that said audiences are slowly, you know, systematically having their standards lower. Therefore, I think their IQ also is diminishing their ability to comprehend esoteric meaning, right? They don't understand what they're watching. Mm. Yeah, they it get it, but they don't get it and they don't want to revisit it to really figure out what the deeper meaning is. It's like Mother. You see Mother, the Darren Aronofsky movie from maybe five years ago. I thought that was that was like too smart to be in theaters. You know what I mean? Yeah. Was- yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, the thing is that uh, one thing that I believe that uh, a lot of horror movies uh, kind of they, they they believe in showing more than than hiding. And I, I'm a strict believer that it's scarier when people are being affected by stuff you don't see, it's scarier not to see the monster. It's scarier not seeing, you know, what's really going on. And I think that, that really, especially when you're dealing with like mental illness and all is in your head and you see these people trying to deal with this issue. And of course, sometimes you wonder that is it truly in their mind or is there another force, you know, affecting them? Because there's a lot out there that because we don't understand it or don't see it doesn't mean it's not out there and that it doesn't affect us because we don't see them affecting us. Doesn't mean that we're not being affected. Well, most people identify existence in relationship to physical reality because they've been trained by conventional science. 
Trained to sit in a subjective position and look at himself here. It's a story of narcissism. The you know one that looks at his reflection in the mirror and identifies with the physical reflection. It doesn't address the being of man, the psychic image of man. It goes beyond the physical after death. What realm that touches? Like when you go to sleep and you lift out of the body suit and touch other realms of existence. But people aren't really trained to perceive reality that way. Their third eye has been shut down since then. They were kids. They've been trained to conceptualize reality from a subjective position and not learn how to kind of jump out of the skin suit to see something more expansive that's not limited by the puppeting of their mere body. They completely yeah. identify with their body mind thoughts that rise. So they don't seek beyond it. So they don't understand things that deal with the potential of existence beyond physical suggests they're locked up in like this matrix prison based on the macrocosmic happening mandala not they don't understand the microcosmic the aspect of reality that's happening that you can't see a lot or what that suggests i mean the physicists have proven it but nothing that matter does not it's not destroyed it just transmigrates at the subatomic level once you get past the atomic structures and the molecular structures man it's just a core matrix, the click-clack, rise, shift, change. And so if you go deeper than that, past the mechanics, what's making that happen? Yeah. It's a rhetorical question, but it opens the door to all sorts of possibilities in terms of how expansive the being of man is in terms of his consciousness. Not the body that's seen in the mirror, but the consciousness of man that exists in other realms. That coincide with this beyond the physics of this. If you identify with the physics of this realm, then that's, I think that's all there is. Uh, you believe locked in a position. If you drop that position and consider the possibility that your physical body is just an illusion, or just a, a transitory viewing screen, and that what's looking through your eyes is the true position, it opens the door to so many possibilities. What you really are. Beyond your identity. Yeah. What do you think happens when we die? You don't die. The yeah. body dies. Fear maybe dissipates, but the being of man uh, is eternal. There is no death. The physics of things fall apart, disintegrate. But when you say when you die, who's the you that you're talking about? We'll talk about me. We'll keep it. We'll keep it light and saying when I die. I'll say you. Yeah, I'm just saying. The question is, who are you really? Yeah. If you identify with a name, a number, or social security, and what appears in the mirror, then clearly death is horrific. If you identify with the conductivity that's manifesting the body, the energy that's bringing the body to life, identify with that source, then you are that. So the source of what's animating the body is what are truly also. Body may drop, but the source, the source of consciousness and the perception that observes all of this is still happening. So when the body drops, the body just drops. But consciousness is still present. So it's kind of like when you're alive, you know, this idea, you make mind, you know. But, you know, when you go to sleep, the possibility when you're sleeping of how 
You don't always have control over the dreams. It's like kind of like that. After death, it's kind of like in life, physical life, you make mine. But after death, mind makes you. You're kind of, if you haven't figured out how to navigate the psychic realms, then you're kind of like lost in this out-of-body weirdness. It's like, oh, shit, what's all this? These yeah. different colors, these different aspects of the mantle, the blue, the yellow. Wow. This is, look at that clear brilliance. It's kind of like dreamscape about the physical suit. So I guess a lot of it has to do what happens after death. I would say it's like they say in prison. It's not where you go. It's how you go. So I think your state of consciousness, your state of consciousness determines what happens after death. Hmm. If you're at peace and there's no anxiety and you see it simply as a transition into another experience, it's just like walking through a door and you let the body suit drop. If you're clinging on to the physical body as the sole point of everything, then it's horrific. If you realize the body is just simply an expression of something far greater that you are that too, you just let it go. You surrender. Rather than go into contractive state, you expand and you surrender to death, which isn't really death. It's the source inviting you to transition to the next aspect of being. The frequency continues. You made the Hindus believe that it re-embodies whatever you're patterning in life shapes your destiny. You construct the physics of your own world in relationship to others based on your tendencies in life. So if your tendency was to exist and cohabitate with others that perceive life a certain way, then you'll be drawn by your own pattern into the frequencies in those realms to be a part of those worlds that are waiting. So I guess a lot of it has to do with what you're doing here mm-hmm. to determine how you manifest after that event. That's just exactly. where I get, that's what I get from it from meditation. Who knows? You, know, you got to stay open to all sorts of possibilities, otherwise it becomes an ism, and not everybody agrees. So it's just kind of like, hey, I think that it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't have to be a sad, terrible event. It can be an opportunity to uh, awaken to something far greater than what we've taught since we children. Mm-hmm. Kind of denied the vision. Limitlessness, and I think as creators, that's why we're drawn to the imagination because the imagination is the closest link to the infinite because it demonstrates the possibility to exist in many different realms as many different beings and not be locked into one identity. Yeah, and I think that's why for our, some artists, it's, it's a spiritual experience to inhabit various characters because they're given the scent of omnipotence, not as an ego, but as a, as a being that can inhabit various planes and story, play, play at God in these different circumstances and communicate that human experience in relationships. So in a sense, filmmaking is like playing God in the way. Yeah. Because you're pretty much creating your own little world. Um, I always had, 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 had an idea that you know, since people talk about different dimensions, the possibility of different dimensions, I always thought it would be interesting if the fact that every time, because everyone says we only use a, like a small part of our brain, if we as creatives, like when we create a world and all that, we're in essence creating another dimension, another dimension where our thoughts, the characters, our, our hopes and dreams for these characters you know, we write a story from beginning to end, but there's never an end. That story just lives on in 
like in, in, in a different dimension. I always thought of, of that as, as, as an interesting idea. I mean, I don't know how, 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 how it is in, in reality, but I always thought that because I think there's nothing stronger in the mind than the creative process. And if we had any true, true power, I always thought it was in creating, not destroying. I'm going to cry. Agreed. Huck. I'm going to cry. Agreed. I hope when I, I hope when I die, I have a grenade in my hand. So when someone comes to check on me, I can go, this is from Matilda and then blow them up. You know what I mean? Speaking of that, <laughs> Leon, Le Professionnel, one of the greatest action movies of the nineties. How that auditioning or did that come about any other different way? Luke Besson saw a picture. Yeah. He saw a picture of me that he liked and then he wanted me to basically, he gave me some notes and basically it was my first experience with self-taping. And he said, I want you to create a scene where you're being tortured. By so I had a friend of mine, Fred Skyder, um, get together with me and we just did that. And I sent it to him. Next thing I know, I'm on set working with He seems like a really cool dude. Um, you know, the fifth element masterpiece as well. Um, a lot, he's done a lot of really, even the family, which some people didn't really give it the praise it should have. The family is actually a really good film with De Niro and, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, I think it is. Yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer. How, uh, what was it like meeting Luke Besson? It was brief. Um, yeah. He was, he was, he was nice. Um, he was very specific about what he wanted. He's very technical director, it seems to me. And, uh, and uh, he took the time to explain to me how the characters to manifest. So I think in that sense, he's truly an actor's director. Yeah. He takes the time to explain. You know, in conjunction with his vision and in your own interpretation, manifest something that's realistic. So I... Yeah, I remember being blown away by that film. I equated to like Taxi Driver, where like there's certain movies you just felt cool watching, and you could those anti heroes, if you will. You know, you always see the edgier you and them type deal. You know what I mean? And uh, yeah, I love that uh, Gene Reno, I believe it is, and uh, the great fucking Gary Oldman, one of his greatest. That him and that and him and True Romance around roughly around the same time is some of the best work he's done. I, but him and the professional, I do the part where they're after they kill the family and he's like taking his pill and he's like snapping his neck. They're like I love the calm before the storm. Fucking great, great, great stuff. Masterpiece. You know what I mean? They were gonna do a sequel at one point with yeah. Matilda. I'm gonna be the killer gonna be the professional killer i'm surprised they never did like they tried to bring that back they didn't you know later in life with natalie portman because she blew up and she could have very well came back and done it you know what i mean and it would have been a cool action flick it's beautiful it's beautiful though water world you know what i mean yeah water world that was a nice trip and I remember the, the, the body cast that was placed in. We made a body cast so they could create this robot and they painted tattoos on it. 
Officer, Kevin Costner on the jet ski. You know, they launched him off the ramp to crush this appearance of me. <laughs> no, I mean, that was more, uh, that was that, more and, vacation than a job. Yeah. I was just telling that going and leaving and working with So it was just fun. It was all on the ocean, the entire shoot, all on the ocean for the Not most part? Stuff. No, I, I think most of the shoot was, but my scenes weren't. My stuff was. Oh, yeah. I wonder if there was a lot of seasickness on that shoot. Really yeah, I heard that th- there was a lot of problems with the uh, the uh, uh, because it ended up being a, a big flop because there was so much money put into it, and uh, I don't think they recouped uh, the the amount because I think there was problems with like the set like falling into the uh, ocean and that kind of stuff. Or it happens during that type of movie. You know what I mean? I'm not a banker now, so I don't speak to that. <laughs> I don't really care about any of that stuff. I think that uh, what I know is that the Universal theme park created a World War Ride. Be quite well with whatever possible suggests. Like, and well. Um, so, you know, regardless of the matter, there's a reason you should talk about it at time. So, yeah. And it still seems to stand, regardless of what yeah. some of the uh, works that they face, like all movies face. I think there was a lot of envy and ill feeling about the cause, but it was perceived as a grossly over, you know, over, over, you know, expanded budget type thing. I remember wearing a t-shirt that was given to me by the crew and I was dating this girl at the time. Well, I didn't date her very much longer, but she looked at the shirt and said, aren't you kind of ashamed to be wearing that? And I remember times in my life when I was in handcuffs or when I was cleaning toilets, or I'd been in fights and almost killed. And I thought, I went to Hawaii and met Kevin Costner, and I'm wearing this T-shirt, and this girl who has no no clue as to what I, where I've been, how far I've come, what that experience is like, which is trivializing. She wanted why. I never yeah. called her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I mean... Nothing really phases me anymore, and I read people with my eyes closed, and I listen very, very carefully to what people say who claim that they love the spirit of things but then go to the equation rather than the mastery of something that was incredibly innovative and brave for its time. Think how brave and innovative that was to contrive or communicate a story like that. It's an apocalyptic thing where the waters rise. It's just, yeah, pretty ambitious. And if you look at it now, it still seems to be top of the conversation, regardless of the perception of it, mm-hmm. or the shame that some people seem to carry over it, like the girl that I was hanging out with at the time. For that. It's pretty ridiculous. Because if you look at in comparison, and I don't look at now too much, but my sense is, though, that these days, that budget, would be considered industry August. standard. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it kind of all, it kind of in the end balances out, doesn't it? Yeah. So what are you left with? Are you left with appreciation or are you left with envy or criticism? It all depends on which, how you want to look at it. Man. Yeah. If you talk to the girl, just look at it with criticism. If you talk to me, I'll say, man, it was, a, it was an opportunity. I had a good time. Man. 
it's, it's hard. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I mean, to talk to. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, I know I've been a part of, uh, a bunch of, uh, projects. I mean, there are going to be projects that you love, the projects that you weren't too happy with it. But, I mean, the, the fact is, I mean, I always try to look at everything I do as a learning experience, whether it's good or positive, you always learn from that. And I've been on, on projects where someone tells me, geez, you know, that's, that's a, a cheap, dumb, you know, uh, horror film. I mean, you I'm know, right here, Alex. Uh, uh, hot, dude. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I mean, we we've all had had those know, comments, and like, aren't you ashamed that you're not doing something bigger? You know, and and of course, I mean, my response is always just like, you know, whether it 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 made the mark that we wanted to or it didn't it's a learning experience and, and, and it's the journey. I mean, you gotta, and, and the thing is we keep on trying to keep on uh, testing ourselves. I always try to be better. And I mean, I definitely agree with you that, you know, you have, have people looking from the outside, they're looking at Waterworld and they're saying, Oh, it's not a great movie or whatever their problems with it. I mean, I remember watching it and I enjoyed it and I was surprised when I read all this negative thing about how, you know, it didn't do well in the, the studios and all that. And and the thing is that it, you're right. I mean, when it comes down, it's like, I mean, the question is, what, did the movie speak to you? Not whether, you know, it made so much more money than, you know, some bean counter thought that it should have made. And, 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 I give Kevin Costner a lot of credit for trying to do something that was kind of ahead of its time. And unfortunately it, it didn't, uh, you know, uh, make the splash that it should have been. Should no have been. Yeah, no pun intended. I think the fact that people consider it to lose, they had, there was so much money going into it. <clears throat> nothing compared to nowadays. And it, it didn't make its money back. I think is why they give it such a hard time. It's not a bad movie. I enjoy them. We got the great late Dennis Hopper in there killing it. Um, great film for sure. You know what I mean? It just catches a bad rat. It's weird. It's like those who see through that lens, will see that those who see the man on the street homeless with no money will appreciate that any job, that you can acquire this industry is a blessing. Those who live in the realm of critique and criticisms are those who secretly envy everything and feel insecure. Those who know the true strength don't have a problem with anything. They just do shape what they're given to do it and not concern themselves. So get caught up because Gary Shannon said to this British community, don't get too attached to the results of to and be grateful that you're afforded the opportunity to make a living work in this industry on any given day, the majority of people that I come across are unemployed. So if you look at it from the street up, you realize some fundamental things that you can always be remembered, which is to be humble, to be grateful, and to approach work with grace. If you look at it from the point of view of banking and what you read in the trades, then you sound like you know, become a talking monkey, become another uh, envious, bottom feeding wannabe who simply 
secretly envious. <laughs> That's what I've noticed. So why concern yourself with any of these things rather than as opposed to um, just recognizing the blessings of a job? And that's it. If you start to investigate other things, then that's the ego. That's narcissism. That's you looking at the reflection back rather than just do, in letting the work envelop you, mm-hmm. doing what you're paid to do. And whatever the results are based on the common belief, if you want to sign yourself in agreement to the common belief, then I guess you're part of the common belief. If you have the strength and the conviction to see things differently, then you don't have conversations with people anymore who talk that way. You start removing them from the equation. You know what I mean? They just disappear because you don't engage them. Yeah. You put you set them straight real quick. I remember coming up years ago in Hollywood, you know, where I used to think I thought I had friends that were in the industry would call me up. Instead of asking me how I'm doing, the first thing they want to know, are you working? Yeah, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> That's the first, why don't you just tell me to go fuck myself, man? Because, and then you tell them something and right away they whip their, their, their penises out. They whip out the measuring stick. And the measuring stick is this. How big is it? Is it good? And what's it worth? How big is it? Is it good? And what's it worth? How many weeks? What's your role? And is it a good? Is it going to go to theaters? All these mechanisms of equations that come from people that are basically during the day, working jobs that they hate and auditioning, not getting any work. And then they come at you with all these evaluations. And it's at this point now, it's kind of laughable to me. I think it's hilarious that there are people that function this way. And I feel sorry for them. Because what it points to is a disposition of, of want that is so great that it loses its humanity and doesn't appreciate anything. Because any artist would know, I once went to acting class and spoke, my teacher wanted me to speak to some of these up-and-coming kids and say, you know, what my experience has been. And I said to them, listen, you guys all know how hard it is to compete for work in the industry. Foreign auditions constantly. You die a thousand deaths waiting in the room. You go in, the producers just line up against the wall, and they, you know, it's like facing a firing squad. And you have to overcome your fear and anxiety and go into these auditions for television and movies and really win the day and show these people you care less about. You're just one of many. It has to do something extraordinary to show these producers why they should hire you. And the odds are stacked against you, just like they were at me, high school performing arts. 2,000 applicants, and they picked seven. So you go in knowing this. All you guys know this going in, that there's about at least 100 other people meeting for the same role. And because you all know this, you know what's at stake, you know what's your experience internally and how uncomfortable that can be. And then when you get work, that you can call back or that you even got the job. Most people become elated and euphoric over knowing that they're being considered. And then they go and they make greatest, greatest error of all. They share that information with their friend or their fellow actor. And I say, when you guys evaluate each other like that, you do each other a disservice, man, because you all know how hard this is. You know how difficult it is to get a gig and to make a living consistently doing something that most people want to do. And chances are, on any given day, I forget what the numbers are, because like I said, I'm not a banker. The numbers suggest, and the ratio percentage, that the majority of people want to be in the industry themselves desperate are not making a living. There's a very small percentage that actually make a consistent living. And when you look at that, 
times everything else that's required and the maddening disposition that can occur when you're constantly in a state of competition with yourself and others and there's no camaraderie. Earlier on, we were talking about camaraderie and the importance of a collaboration in the film. So we have to stay in that realm of thinking because once we stray away from that and we start measuring things in terms of success and box office and this and all this stuff, you start to emulate the banking system. You start to talk like the people that are sitting in seats of power with corporate. And I don't, you know, they do, they, they do what they do. I do what I do. So it's kind of like when my friends call me that I talk to, and they say, man, I got a job. I said, man, right on, brother. Congratulations. Or I just came off a gig. Right on. Were they nice to you? Yeah. I don't whip out no measuring stick on them, man. I don't ask them how much they got paid. I don't ask him what the character was. I don't ask him what the banker. Do they owe me money? When you start to evaluate or criticize or critique your friends, what did Ozzy Osbourne say in that song? When you choose to criticize, you choose your enemies. I think it was rock and roll rebel. When you choose to criticize, you choose your enemies. So when you recognize that your brother is fighting for his life or sister is fighting for a life for a piece of bread, in an industry that is barbaric, mercenary, and unforgiving, and the competition is unbelievable. You know, it's really ridiculous. For them to secure any revenue in any position is remarkable. And so you remind them it's remarkable. Good for you, man. Happy for you. Because if you really love your friends, you want them to be happy and succeed. But if you're envious and you're harboring resentment, you show that. So I told these kids. Us. Listen, man. Guys, be kind to one another. Be kind to each other in your observations, because if you're not, then it's going to make it even more difficult. And then you wonder why you're all alone and isolated. And this kind of thing. So try to consider what you what you go through in relationship with the other, rather than be angry, be appreciative. But it's a very difficult thing to do. I'm not saying it's easy to transcend uh, vanity. Mm. It's very difficult to you know, and envy. Envy is a difficult thing to transcend. When you feel like, why, how come not me and this guy? I could tell you a hundred stories of situations where I was denied things that other people say to me, Robert, that should have been you. You know how many times people have come up to me? But you got to let it go and just realize that everything is flowing like the Tao. We have to just allow things to happen the way they're supposed to happen. Because you just best with forward and approach it in a very um, benign way and just be grateful about the work. It's To me, at the end of the day, it's always just about the work. And if you can, by some miracle, combine the work with employment, man, you've done the miraculous, man. You're part of the Red Sea. You're walking on water. And once you start to forget that, you're done now. You become arrogant, you become unappreciative, and you lose sight of the innocence that drove you there in the first place. Not everybody's driven by innocence. People are driven by greed, they're driven by fanfare and vanity, they want to become God. It's impossible. It doesn't work that way. And if you think that the people that stand in what is perceived as the higher stations as God, you're mistaken. They're still human and they still suffer the indignities of the fall. Remember, what's his face and his best work? But what's happened to him since then? Whatever happened? All this, these sentences and this type of dialogue 
diminishes the artist and blames the artist for things that the artist has no control over in an industry that is selling product. If you lose sight of the artist and focus on, well, where is she now? Where is he now? You become a gossip feed and a gossip predator. And you lose sight of your own journey. And my question then would be the same criticism or critique that you assign to others who've gone down this road forever. Would you assign that same criticism to yourself? Would you see yourself the same way? For those who are masochists who hate themselves, yeah, they'll see that. But for those who understand the difficulty and the great war with many, many battles, will appreciate any veteran who's been around for many decades fighting the good fight and will give them respect for that alone and realize that everything else, everything else, the media, the stations, the money, the perception, the reviews, is out of your control, has nothing to do with you. Nothing. But when you make that about you, then you get caught up in the bullshit. You become this very thing that you're taking issue with. You become that. So it's a really fine line. So that's, I would suggest that to anybody and anybody that's in your sphere of happening with work, creative, that does not support you. You know, like you pluck weeds out of the, you pluck the weeds out, just pluck them out. Get rid of them. Don't even engage those conversations. Anybody, you don't like what you're hearing? Oh, I gotta go. Anything that's not support what you're doing. Yeah. Or tries to make you feel small and diminish your efforts is your enemy. It's the devil. <laughs> it's the devil. Negativity is. is like cancer, you know. What well, I mean? it's, it's the devil meaning devil is a metaphor for this idea of something pulling you down into a realm of depravity, a realm of powerlessness, a realm of hopelessness, helplessness. It's this physics, gravity field that tries to pull you into a, you know, uh, an antimatter field, this dark field where you're just, you know. Where the light is supposed, you're supposed to ascend, right? The idea mm-hmm. is he's blowing up, he's getting bigger. This idea that the spirit of the artist is now being celebrated and being allowed to demonstrate this ability, not for its own sake, for its own ego's sake, for the sake of the art form itself. When you get too caught up and look at me, look at me, you lose sight of what your responsibility is, which is to serve the art form so that others can observe it enjoy it, be entertained by it, and maybe, I don't know, come away with some kind of inspiration because of the film. Something that you did. Because when you talk, I notice you're very inspired by performances that you've witnessed over time because they did something physics of your body and your mind. That's what's required. And that's what makes the difference. And when people lose focus of that and they focus on other things and they look at rise and decline, they become like, you know, the people that look at Matrix and observe patterns of math. They're, you know, they're the label makers. Yeah. They're the, the Wall Street guys that watch this shit. And to me, that's a dangerous affair unless you want to be part of that. That's not an artist. An artist doesn't do that. That's a capitalist. That's money money. Yeah, that negativity is like cancer. You got to get away from it. And it might, on the surface, it might feel like it's not going to harm you if you go strong-willed, okay. I'm not, I, I hear him, but I'm not believing him. I'm hearing him, but I'm not believing him. Even that little, that the fucking, it's little seeds of doubt that they're planting in your head is, uh, just troublesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's easily avoided though. Once you can yeah. identify and recognize it, it's just like stepping over an ant. All it is is a fucking ant. 
<laughs> so you just step over or step on it, depending on what your trip is. If you're a Buddhist, you step over. If you're a crusader, you step on it, crush it. It all depends on what your trip is. If you're, if you're Ozzy Osbourne, you snort him up, if I remember correctly. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Bring it back around. Whatever works. Buddy. Hell yeah. Um, let's talk about the mule for a second, because the great and powerful Clint Eastwood, I mean, a mega house, powerhouse of his time, you know, legendary actor and his whole like, you know, I know he's been directing for a while. I think Play Misty for me was the first thing he ever directed. And he's been a great filmmaker and one of the best filmmakers we have going right now. How, how'd that project come about with it, with that? I was living in Washington at the time and I got a call from management that Tony Eastwood people wanted me to do a cell tape. So I went in my closet and I pointed a, a tablet at myself and I ripped it off and I sent it out. And then uh, he looked at it, Tony Eastwood looked at it and he said, have Robert do it again this time. Here's the adjustment. So then I did it. And then I got hired and they flew me from Washington to uh, forget the location, location where it's from. There's somewhere in the desert. And uh, it was surreal, man. How often is that? Man? Before the man who was in the scene with you, directing and star. So it was kind of at first intimidating, but once it's like this, you know, you jump into a pool, it's cold, you know, but you start swimming around. After a while, like, oh, that's just nice. Yeah. It was like the. I met Andy Garcia. He was there. <laughs> He introduced himself to my Andy Garcia and it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. And then he put his hand around my head like the way an uncle would uh, caress his nephew. I never forgot that. And uh, I remember, too, when we made the film that Tony Swift was the last. I saw this long line of people waiting to eat during lunch, and I saw this old man standing in the back, and I realized it was Tony Swift waiting in line and letting everybody else go ahead of him. And I thought, wow, look at the such humility. And then he sat down and ate with the group. You know, some of these, you know, I guess these celebrities type steak, you know, they're kind of hustled away from everybody. I did a movie recently with somebody I won't mention who didn't even want the cast to look at him. Hmm. He made everybody that you're on set and not allowed to look. And I remember thinking, wow, this is going to be difficult to watch his movies now. I was such a big fan. <laughs> anyway, yeah. But uh, Clint Eastwood wasn't like that. He, uh, not only could you look at him, you could talk to him, and he working with him was so fun too because he would improvise. Like I remember we did some scenes together, because you know all my scenes were with him, and uh, I went off book a couple of times and I had with him, he added with me, so we kind of played jazz. Man, it was kind of cool to do that. He liked it. He was doing that. Good stuff, kid. He kind of tap me in the stomach. Give me a little push. Yeah. Yeah, he's iconic, man. The man with no name himself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Alex, did you have a mule question? I know you were a Gigantor fan of the mule. Um, I think you hit most of it. Just um, and I just recently rewatched it again, and uh, I I I really loved. Uh, I think it's maybe the second or third scene you're with him where you guys are talking and it's with uh the uh the new guy who's like uh i forget uh a nephew or something and he's going on a ride along and you guys are 
I think he's asking you like how, how your family's doing and all that, that very, you know, friendly kind of older guy, you know, talking to a younger guy, you're helping him with his like phone and all that. I just really thought that was a really cool scene and just really felt, you know, so organic and so natural. I didn't feel like there was any reason to posture, you know, this idea of foreboding, uh, Cart, you know, drug cartel because we already have that. I mean, it's written all over us in terms of our disposition. So it was more about, you know, we're making money now. We kind of like this guy. Earl is kind of an eccentric character. We get a kick out of him. And so we talked about it being a more affectionate relationship and we respecting my elders. So I think it was nice to, where I feel like there were scenes in the movie where there's a lot of posturing or some, some of the characters felt the need to, you know, tense up but to, to me, that's the mark of an experience. Most of the guys I've ever met that were truly dangerous didn't do that. They were very relaxed and calm and looked like they wouldn't harm a fly until you upset them. Yeah. And then you'd see a shift and you wouldn't recognize them. So I think that's what was important to demonstrate the humanity of the character that I was playing, the relationship with the man. Like you said, when he was confused about texting and never texted before and the guys were kind of laughing at him. I, I, you know, I saw it as an opportunity to be considered, just like people are considered with me, because I'm also technologically, <laughs> I wouldn't say handicapped or challenged. I would say I'm technically resistant, because technology to me is the devil. It's like it's gone too far. It's going too fast. It needs to slow the fuck down, man. So I purposely step back from it, uh, not because I'm afraid of it. I just feel like it's, it's a problem. Um, it becomes a, a way to escape reality. But anyway, the point is, is that uh, yeah, man, I was just same empathy that people give me. Like, hey, let me show you how to do something, Rob. You know, phone. I was like, yeah, I have an opportunity to show this old guy. He's like, texting? What's that? <laughs> that was kind of cool. You know, to be able to do it. And each time we met him in sequences, the relationship got a little softer. And, 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 and it wasn't about <clears throat> any of this like, projection of aggression. It wasn't necessary. Fuck, guy behind me is holding a fucking, you know, an AK-47, man. <laughs> you know, and his face reeks of like death, you know. And so, what do you, you know, you don't really have to, you know, posture, man. All you got to do is just inhabit the space and breathe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all there, you know. The question is, you know, are these do these guys like you or not? You know, yeah. and I think it's beautiful to see that relationship and subtleties demonstrate an affection rather than will kill you. You know, that's been done a hundred times and it gets boring after a while. We've seen that already. How can we twist this a little bit to make it more human? Because you guys say bad guys. To me, they aren't bad guys. They're just men who have a conflict that they're struggling with. And sometimes the conflict overtakes them, like an apocalypse now. And the guy's talking about the colonel, how, you know, the greater nature, you know, sometimes the, uh, the evil overcomes the greater nature of our, of our angels or something. So that Colonel Kurtz was battling with this idea of good and evil. That, you know, the, the darkness overcame them. But sometimes in that struggle, you see humanity and it's, and it's best because that's realistic. Because most men will admit to you that they battle with temptation all the time. Mm. Some people just are more extreme about their methodology. They will go do something. But I think that conflict lives within everybody so i think there's a danger when you start labeling you know this person's good this person's bad we have both in us and some people succumb to 
one more than the other. Some demonstrate a disposition of, uh, you know, of, of, of peace and love. And yet underneath, they're secretly stealing money. So it's a very, humanity's dynamic is very complicated. You know, the superficial self and what it projects isn't always what's really going on. Yeah. You know, so this idea of labeling things and so putting people in categories, man. I don't, it's just when you think you got the devil, don't. Or you think, oh, this guy, I thought I knew this person. And then something happens to demonstrate that humanity suggests that they fell prey to a temptation that shames the physics of how they are. You know, maybe prior to that, they did a bunch of good things, but they made a decision to use this now. Yeah. So does that make them a bad person? They made a bad decision. So it's, just, it's a very, um, to me, it's a very complex matter in that regard, which also I think is, is, is fertile ground to build characters that are rich and realistic if you embrace the humanity. If you embrace your character and say, I'm a bad guy, you enter cartoon land. Man. Right. It's <laughs> not like whiplash. <laughs> you have to embrace your character's humanity because mm-hmm. they all have it. Even the ones you think of darkest some semblance, even if it's this much, there's something still there. You dig deeper, you find something, I believe, that suggests that, you know, something more. Yeah. Yeah, I always look at it like he or she is is out there. They're trying to do what everybody else is doing, which is like feed their family and live a happy life. It just That just happens to be the trade that they know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the guy who's helping cut the trees down. He says, yo, I got a wife and family to support. Well, who's your boss? My boss is over here. But my boss is working through a subsidiary company in China that's a subsidiary. You know, and then this Margaret in Malibu owns stock in that company, and then she willed all her money to the cats. And the cats are getting fed in this estate. She's died, so the cats are cutting all the trees down. Mm. You follow me? Yeah. So it's kind of like when you're dealing with monopoly games and power trips, and the deforestation and the trees are being cut down and all this shit is happening, who's the culprit? Is it Margaret Malibu or the cats? Because she willed all the money in the estate that the cats be cared for. And she didn't really look at that she owns stock in this company that's cutting all these trees down in South America. So as long as the cats are provided for, that's fine. But the trees continue to be cut down. Yeah. Is Margaret a bad guy or the cats a bad guy? Or is it just simply an irresponsible act that does not consider the impact that it's making in other people's lives. The guy says, look, don't come kill me, man. I'm only cutting these trees down because I need to, I got a wife and kid, man, and I got to pay my bills. Yeah, but your company is responsible for doing this and this. And so we're going to blow your tractors up. We're going to blow up your dirt. We're going to take your chainsaws, man, and fuck them up because we don't want you cutting the trees. So who's the bad guy? Mm-hmm. The law would say <clears throat> that the guy who blows up the tractor is going to go to jail. Because he broke the law, but from the point of view of environmentalists, they'd say, "No, you guys cut the trees down. You guys are bad guys. Right? You're serving the corporation and destroying our world, man." Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of gray there, man. It when is. You start really looking at things, bro. <laughs> it's true. Everything. You gotta, yeah. gotta really consider how dynamic stuff is and why things happen. It's not as simple as people think. There's a lot of people in play doing things that don't want to be accountable, yet are the link in the chain of evil that make pulls the beast along. 
Yeah. Go, don't look at me. It's not my fault. So all in a sense, slaves to that mechanism of function <clears throat> that creates the cesspool that we call life or the world, unfortunately, that's been contaminated by humanity's uh, insensitivity to yeah. the wellspring, to the oceans, to the, the lakes, to everything, to the atmosphere. Why is this happening? Why are we allowing it to happen? Or we, is it just a runaway train because we've ha- put into practice for so long something that we've utilized as power? We don't know how to pull the reins out because if we stop it and all these jobs go away, then we create another problem. So there's a domino effect. If we try to correct this, then this happens. So it's a house of cards. So maybe the whole thing has to collapse. But whose fault is that? Who's the bad guy? Are we all guilty? Because we're all participating. And the guy says, well, look, I don't want to go to war, man. I don't want to kill my and my Middle Eastern brothers. Well, I don't either. But here's the thing. The guys that are driving down Pacific Coast Highway in the big Humvees and the, and the cool cars that take all this gas and oil and they're bling bling. Every time I see one of those big vehicles, you know what I see? I see a bunch of dead soldiers. I've got to see my brothers getting their fucking arms blown off. I see all these dead kids that have been blown up by, by, by these drones just laying their graves. Little babies just dead because somebody wants to drive on. Yeah. So we can continue to, to disturb the demand for oil to move the ego along, to move the image along. Be cool. Meanwhile, our brothers are going to war fighting our Afghanistan brothers so that we can hold that value, show off something, not considering the link to where that goes. And so the leaders go, hey, they want us. No problem. We'll make money on it. We'll blow these people the kingdom come. Justify it because all these people are good. They don't even realize they're helping support the value of war. Yeah, I don't want to go to war, man. I don't want to kill nobody. Get it? Yeah. So it doesn't matter. All of that's because we're all participating on some level in holding the value that keeps that machine moving. So they say, time for you to go to war. Don your uniform, grab your M16, go to war. Because you're living in this country. You can't just cop out. You can't. Then turn off the power. Don't drive the car. Go live in the, in the woods. And then you can say, I'm off grid. I don't participate in this constitution of lies anymore. Then you can truly be a conscientious, conscientious objective. But if you're sucking off the tip of capitalism and benefiting from propagating that materialism, then you have to go to war because you're helping perpetuate. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. You got some yeah. Ted Kaczynski, you know what I mean, doing it big. <laughs> The, uh, if we bring up an iconic actor like Clint Eastwood, we have to bring up an iconic actor like Alexander the Hawk. You know what I mean? <laughs> Who, uh, you I work, you, you I, work I, with. I, 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 I work like, with you, Alex, on Bloodthirst, by the way. I enjoy yeah. working with you on Bridget the Doomed and Bloodthirst. I had a great time working with you. Yeah. I watched so, some of your yeah. sequences. I thought they were really well done. Your performance yeah. in Bloodthirst. I, thought was really I love Alex Hawk as an actor and a person. <laughs> Well, uh, I hope so. You know we'll I do. We'll once together for you. Hate me now. <laughs> you know I love you. Yeah, I know when Alex came back, he was really pumped up singing your praises. You know, it's good. We, we've been a fan for a while. It's always good to hear that people are good people because every now and then you hear the opposite. You know what I mean? Where people aren't that great. You know what I mean? 
Well, I'm not, Rich, that's what I want to tell you, and I'm sure some of the producers I've worked will attest to this, that I'm no paragon. I'm not a paragon of virtue. I have my moments where I think I become so frustrated. I'm sure Alex has witnessed this, that I become so frustrated that I don't always behave in a manner that's conducive to uh, democracy. I get, I become angry and kind of rude because um, I have such affection for the art form and how things, I, I, I you know, idealize how they should go when they don't go that way. Yeah. I, be, I can become abrupt. And so I'm, I'm trying to work on being more diplomatic and recognized you know, just because I have a certain set of skills and perceptions of how things should go. I shouldn't project it onto other people if they're not quite there yet. You know, I have to be more forgiving. So I have to work on that. I haven't always been, when you work on you know studio stuff or television, they move at such fast pace and they're so unforgiving. I was trained under those circumstances to deliver. If you don't deliver, you get fired. If you don't hit your mark, you're fired. They see evidence that you're not pulling your weight, doing what you're supposed to do. They kill your character. Huh. There's no room for error. There's no room for, I don't know my lines. There's none of that. So I grew up in a school of marketplace because I've been on a lot of the television shows back in the day and they did all the studio stuff. I saw what they required, how, how meticulous they were. Every single word that the writer wrote, he wanted to say it exactly the way it was written. And, you know, so with that kind of physics, I was trained. So when you move into an area where it's kind of loose and people don't know their lines or they're improvising or it seems to take on this kind of convoluted, you know, misinformed conundrum called filmmaking, you're like, what the fuck is going on, man? <laughs> and, I, you know, it's hard to keep patience when you want something to succeed and you realize that sometimes the captain at the helm is steering the ship into the rocks. Well, what do you I do? Have, you declare mutiny and, and kill the captain? Or do you do? Or just hope for the best that the ship doesn't go down? Yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I mean, one thing I, I definitely did want to uh, break up, uh, bring up, which I don't think I, I've been able to do uh, yet, so I'm going to take this opportunity. I do want to thank you for when we were on Bridge of the Doomed. I was uh, doing my lines. I was having a little trouble, and yeah. You helped me through it. You, coached, uh, you know, coached me a little bit on that. And uh, I want to thank you for that. That meant a lot to me. You're welcome, though. Anytime. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, um, as, as you know, as an actor, um, and, and the way I always see it is that every actor um, attacks uh, the script, uh, the character, and all that in, in different ways or find different ways to... And I'm... The way I always uh, attack my characters is I always go for the emotional aspect, the emotion of the scene, the emotion of the character. And in that scene, it was, you know, just pretty much a bunch of facts. And I think my head was getting a little too, you know, wrapped up with the facts and, you know, trying to throw in, you know, personality and all that. And, you know, it's, it, it happens. I mean, uh, and it's funny because I remember I was like going over those lines like continuously. And then when you get up there, your brain sometimes just doesn't work. I mean, it happens to us all. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But, uh. Yeah, that is correct. Bringing <laughs> yeah. it off the page is very challenging. Bringing it into three dimensions and even fourth dimensions. Also, this character, the way it's written, suggests a spiritual uh, aspect of the character. Yeah. yeah. I 
I know you recently flipped cameras and uh, behind doing some your directorial debut. Yeah, American Trash. It looks great. Uh, how did that come about? How did blossom? Well, I think the initial inspiration was that I was sitting in my car one day, looking out at the ocean, and I was enjoying this amazing view of the ocean, the beach break, the sand, and then I saw this family um, walk up to this, you know, very expensive-looking kind of suburban family type group. And they were cleaning off, meticulously cleaning off the sand and feet and everything, and then they would be using paper towels. And I remember seeing the father take a pause because he saw me watching. And then he took a minute to think about it, and he just threw the paper on the ground on the beach, and this, the rest of the family just kind of discarded the trash. And I thought, this I thought to myself, what would happen if someone, a woman, let's say, walked up to him and politely asked, hey, sir, yes, can you please pick up the trap? Because what I come away with is I did some research on this. Every, you know, year, every month, there's X amount of tons of garbage being dumped in the ocean. There's X amount of trash. Like, it would blow your mind how much is seeping in along the coastline because plastic bottles, all this stuff, is running off into the ocean. It's killing the dolphins are getting sick from it, the fish are being, all this were contaminated by doing that. So I think when I saw that, that was my first inspiration to start writing. What would happen if some like neo hippie type woman came up to him and started preaching the gospel of like, this is our mother earth, man. What are you doing? You know, his response would be like, Well, do you own this beach? Do you own this property? No, I don't own it. We don't, none of us own it. The earth owns us, man. She's our mother and she's sustaining us. So maybe just consider that. So I, I thought about a philosophy like the sixties. If I brought the sixties philosophy into the 21st century to kind of confront this apathetic culture we live in where everything's so disposable, nobody cares about each other. What if a few people came together and considered that? And suffered a common loss, like a girl gets killed because she asks somebody lightly to throw something away and they, they kill her, they kidnap her or something. How, what does that, what, that's the cause, right? So what's the effect after that? What do we do? Do we seek revenge? Do we find the killers? Do we find it within ourselves to forgive? Do we become more sensitive to our environments and our areas? Do we spread awareness? What do we do? Because it's happening right now. In Fox Hills, they're kidnapping young girls. Um, in Venice, California right now, there's an epidemic of over- overdoses because of, uh, you know, heroin and uh, other stuff. So people are dying in record numbers down there. So it's not, I'm not fabricating anything. I'm looking around at my world going, holy shit, what happened to California's dream? The ruination of the city from the 60s up until now is quite obvious if you see the span of time over the decades what's happened and why so i'm exploring some in interpersonal relationships how in the 21st century people who are dealing with incredible violence now and if you've heard you know there's people walking right up with guns and just robbing people in places in beverly hills or mm. kicking in doors in Redwood, executing this elderly couple i think the, the, the husband was shot and was executed and the woman was beat. And these are places that are considered prominent communities. They're just right. smashing and grabbing. And this is recent. 
So I thought, okay, this is the world I'm living in. Do I want to focus on the negative or am I going to utilize the negative to demonstrate what's possible if we can, not by force, but by love and transcendence and sensitivity to each other, we ignite humanity's concern for its own culture, its own neighborhood, its own world, so that the force of the world that's doing this will meet with another force that say, yo, man, that's not cool. Don't do that. You know. So I'm trying to, in my own way, create a social comment, communicate a social commentary within a, a very specific plot line to demonstrate a culture of apathy. But the hope, though, that despite what all the bad news suggests, that there's still humanity left, there's still love, and even when there comes unforeseeable tragic loss, that we can come together as people and heal that and transcend the violence, transcend the negativity with love and understanding. And at the same time, you know, let's take a look at our world. Let's look around. We already know. Everybody, nobody wants, I'm tired of looking. I don't want to see this, but maybe we have to at some point come to terms with what we're doing. And just like the guy thought it was okay to throw the trash away. I wanted to create a play where people would have a, a discussion about that. <laughs> where would that lead to? Would it lead to violence? Would it lead to, hey, man, oh, yeah, right. I don't know why I threw that away. I guess it all depends on who you talk. Yeah. Yeah. You never know what kind of response you're going to get these days. If people are willing to shoot you or kill you over nothing, what are they going to do if you ask them politely to pick up the garbage? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic, you know, now with people and their egos and their sense of entitlement and all that. Uh, but I think ultimately it's just a story about transcendence and love and a romance that overcomes the nightmarish circumstance of a society that's gone crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a good, it's like real life and uh, it's important. It's like an important film that kind of needs to be made, I feel. You know what I mean? Well, These things you know, need to be talked about more. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, for me, it is. it's very personal to me. My hope is that it will communicate to those who understand it. I don't expect everyone to get it. You know, some people want to see, you know, stories of vengeance and somebody going after somebody, killing you know, high body count. It depends on what the person wants in their fantasy. Yeah. Um, I'm really a big fan of stories that are human where people face extraordinary circumstances and have to overcome themselves and the circumstances. I'm a big fan of those that, to me, those are the true superheroes because yeah, yeah. they deal with elements of reality that are tangible. The other stuff is escapism. It teaches a lesson in escapism that's dangerous for young minds because what's happening is the young people, some of these newer generations, are losing sight of their own humanity. And they see life as a video game, no consequences. And they go out and grab a machine gun. So what do we teach? We're, teaching, we're not raising them right. Right. We're raising them wrong. Right? So what's that about? Typically, well, one has nothing to do with the other. Really? You think so? Okay. How much are you making off that game, man? Right. So, you know, hey, man, look. We're a country of violence. We're a country of pirates. If you look at the history of the United States and everything, we're still dealing with the karmic repercussions of the slaughter of the Indians and all this stuff. So maybe it's apropos that this is all happening the way it is so that it can ultimately run its course and then be done. Yeah. 
I support that. Have you uh, have you wanted to direct for a while, or just the the, the passion the passion for no. it got you in the? No, I haven't actually wanted to do any of that. I try to avoid it with at every turn. People can say to me, Robert, when are you going to do your own thing, man? Because I'll yeah. be on sets and I'll be tough. I'll give them, you know, I'll, I'll suggest something. I'll suggest something. But Robert, you should, you should direct, man. You know, you're like taking control of this or trying. I'm like, nah, yeah, yeah. And then, like I said, one day I was just sitting in my car. And I saw this family and thought, okay, it's time to write this to do this. And I have also certain personal reasons and affections, uh, you know, that are near and dear to me. Um, this idea of, uh, you know, I think this comes from watching, maybe Alex, you can appreciate this, you know, the black and white movies that, you know, uh, a lot of their themes are on this idea of tragic love stories. You know? um, so I wanted to integrate an aspect of love between a man and a woman that, you know, where the man experiences great loss because I've experienced that. I think a lot of people have experienced loss and not everybody deals with it the same way. And also my character is uh, served in the Gulf War. So because I'm former military, I can identify with certain aspects of PTSD because I've been treated with PTSD. So the film also deals with elements of um, that and basically you know, trying to re-enter society from the point of view of war and nothing making sense. So I wanted to basically tell a story that's not about a guy in prison. I'm, I'm not a convict. I'm a veteran. So I wanted to finally tell a story that brings to the forefront of, of observation something that I can actually speak on because I did I did, I did time. I was in the military. And uh, I was actually... So... I want to speak to that. I want to speak to what the human psyche has to go through and the heart of man has to deal with when they experience a loss that's tragic and violent. Because people do nowadays, it's it's happening a lot. So, and at the same time, I wanted to introduce a variable of love, presence. It seems hopeless, but it's not. And in the end, you realize that there's cliches and sound that, that love transcends all the negativity. And so I wanted to utilize elements that I know to be true, but at the same time, I didn't want to glorify them. I don't want to glorify the violence. I don't want to make a pity party at PTSD. I want to explore it, show one person's perspective of it, my perspective of it. So other men, because I've met a lot of guys that have served over there in Afghanistan. I've talked to them. I see what they're going through. So I wanted to provide an opportunity for men to see, or women to see something that maybe they can relate to. Because they feel misunderstood. No one has seen the, the carnage that they've seen, the hypocrisy that they witnessed, and what it's done to them. You know? So I wanted to have some scenes in the movie where my character talks about the effects of the war, what he's witnessed, someone he loves very dearly, was taken away from him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it encompasses, I think, elements of our human existence that are very intense. But at the same time, like I said, it's a story of transcendence. So I don't, as much as I play around with or, or entertain the aspects of tragedy, I also have a resolve that points to something that transcends it, that provides hope for you. So that this conclusion isn't like, oh man, we're all, we're all screwed. It's all death and despair and there's no hope. No, no, there is hope. There's not only hope, there's love. And love outshines the nightmare. Love will overcome the light and the love of itself 
will outshine the darkness. Because I've been a student and a, I guess an expert in the realm of shadows. They keep having me propagate that philosophy of death, demonology, nefarious doings. So I'm very well equipped and have a good skill set to understand how darkness operates. I've lived it in my personal life. I've watched it in others. We watch it in our world. So I thought, well, do I want to propagate that same thought or I utilize that mythos and combine it with something else to show something more hopeful mm-hmm. and something that's more bound, that's balanced and not glorify this idea of evil and overcome with love. Yeah, I definitely think that we need, we definitely need more movies, stories like that because I mean, the answer for like, uh, vengeance and, 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 and retaliation and all that's easy answers. That's easy ways of dealing with hurt and all that. But it takes, takes strong people to sit down and try to help and build people up and, Unfortunately, I mean, I don't, there's not a lot of things out there that promotes that because everyone wants the, you know, that cathartic release of like, ah, the bad guy got what he deserved. I feel better now. But I mean, as you said, no one's really a bad guy. Everyone comes from a different aspect of life and they're all reacting in different ways. Some of it negative, some of it positive, some of it just plain in the gray area. And and we need we definitely need films like what you're working on, and uh, really think. Uh, I mean, I know personally, I can't wait to see when it's done. And uh, I wish you the best, you know, getting that out there because it's an important message and it's an important story that I think needs to needs to be out there more than a lot of other stuff that people just throw out just to you know shut the mind off because. The problem is, we as a society have shut our mind off to so many things that we're at a tipping point where if we don't start realizing what's going on with the world around us, we're going to end up being to a point where we can't correct it. And 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 I think that uh, I think we have to start sit back and realize that there's more to life than you know you know violence or of you know, gratification. I remember an interview between Burt Lancaster and uh, Mike, I think it was Kirk Douglas, where Kirk Douglas was arguing that their job as performers was to entertain the people. And Burt Lancaster was arguing, no, we have a responsibility to entertain and also educate. And Kirk Douglas was like, no, no, that's not our business. It's not our business to send messages. It's our business just to entertain. And Burt Lancaster was like, no. It was interesting watching him go back and forth, talking about this notion of responsibility for the to tell stories that inspire humanity rather than condemn humanity endlessly to hell and solutions that aren't really solutions. Because last time I looked, revenge doesn't work. Yeah. I've been to Angola State Penitentiary. I've been on death row. I've seen them in Stanford. If you kill somebody, most likely, Technology behaviors, the eventual purpose. It's not like the movies. They're right. going to catch And you're going to go to prison. You're going to fight for the rest of the people that hate you. Any number of reasons. Because of skin color. Because of all kinds of things. Because that's what they're doing. It's a training ground. It's a gladiator school. 
violence unless you hide out in a book in a religion. There's no evidence that suggests that the things they're teaching in these stories provide solution. You go to jail, go to prison. Yeah. That's reality. That's yeah. what I've seen. All the guys I knew that did shit went up and just shot them up and shot the dead. Well, they're all sitting in the penitentiary. And that doesn't make them bad. They just got caught. You know, and they want, they don't want to be there. Yeah. They're there. So you got to be careful. I remember when I, I walked down the tier in Angola State Penitentiary on death row, I felt ashamed of myself because I thought, all these guys were looking at me, giving me respect. And one guy handed me a painting on the cell because he had spent a lot of time cultivating art form. He became a master of paintings. All this talent locked up in the cage. Here I am on the other side of the cage, standing next to the CO, making these movies glorify us. And uh, uh, so I think at this stage, yeah, I, you know, I'm not saying, look, I'm not going to, Bite the hand that feeds me. I understand what you said. People want to see what they want to see. I get that. But if I have any control to make a project or make a film or write something with, like Burt Lancaster would suggest to Kirk Douglas, I feel like I have a responsibility at the stage. Yay or nay, whether it's perceived as a good product or a bad product, who cares? The reality of it is for me, I have a responsibility at the stage to communicate something that's uh, more human. Yeah. than what I've been demonstrating. And it's not me. I, I've been told what to do. You don't tell your boss what to do. Your boss says, look, here's the work order. Do it. People keep saying, Robert, when are you going to do something different? When my boss lets me. Michael Mahal and Sonny Mahal have been probably the only the few producers in the recent past that have allowed me to move out of character of structure. They indicate something very different. You know, riding horses, playing vampires, playing assault. You know, a general in the army, you know, yeah. handful in the military, but no one in the so-called mainstream of popularity would allow it. So I see what's possible. And I am grateful to them. I told Mike and some of the pizza they They've allowed me to do things that no one else would consider. Once I saw that that was possible, and now we talked earlier about how tattoos are now such a hand feeling, they don't carry the same stigma, but okay, then it's time for me to step up and communicate something with responsibility to humanity, to the craft, and not replicate their idea. I'm talking about Sonny Mahal, Sonny Mike, I'm talking about the others who locked me up in the Charlie Manson cage forever, considered me a social pariah, the devil. And open the cage just to let me come out and do devilish things and put me back in the cage for a life sentence. And that's cool. Like, I'm not hating on it. I know how to do it. I'm very equipped to manifest the incubus in that state of consciousness that vibrates them. The difficulty is that once you do that too much and people get used to that, then they identify only that. And if there's other aspects of your creativity that are equally strong or capable, why not exploit those two so people can see something else and combine it? So my story isn't a story about utopia. I'm definitely going to utilize aspects of what people are used to seeing me do, but I'm going to buy it with different elements that we're not used to seeing present while that's happening. Love is going to be present. Say, no, that's not the way. What are you doing? The argument, I'm going to present the argument. 
rather than the agreement to follow through with the evil. We present the argument that rebukes that and says, listen, man, that's not the answer. So in that sense, I feel like I'm being responsible, definitely responsible to the art form in the marketplace. Whether it makes sense to people or not, it's not my affair. I hope it does. It's not my, not my affair. Yeah. My affair is simply to make something that's coherent and the performance is to be effective enough where people feel something. They may not understand what they're saying, but as long as they feel something, talk about, I feel my way through my characters well, but I don't think my way, I feel it. So if people can feel something, mission accomplished. It's all it is. Yeah. When I watch a film, I'm not looking for perfection. I'm just looking to get out of my head for a while and feel something and be taken off into another world and live with characters that maybe I can relate to. Yeah. Feel something for you. That's all it is to me. Now, for people who want spaceships and monsters or, you know, whatever, gun battles, right on. Let's say there's anything more. There's, that's why it's beautiful to have such, um, you know, a marketplace filled with so many options, you know? Yeah. But I'm not going to propagate the very thing that has enslaved me and locked me up in jail. Why do that? If I have the key to open the door and step out on my own, I'm going to do it. Yeah. I'm going to stay in the cage. Why would I do that? Yeah. To make any sense. You know? Okay. Unless you believe yourself to be them. Some people believe that they are their characters. So this must be who I am. They all see me this way. But I learned years ago not to trust anything that my family said to me, my so-called friends. They're all wrong. They all predicted my future for me. Every single one of them were incorrect, except maybe one or two. And the two that were right were the ones that were preaching the gospel of possibility and hope and happy life and success. All the others were showing me the measuring stick and the limitations. I'm like, oh, this, is where, this is where you're going to end. This is where it ends. <laughs> okay. That's a lot. We should, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> So it's all good, man. It's beautiful. It is beautiful. You know, we we usually like to wrap up the show with a big question for everybody. Um, you know, we get a lot of artists of all walks of life, you know, film, music, authors, comedians, all types of people pursuing, you know what I mean? So we like to ask people, for the people listening, um, what advice would you have for somebody that, you know, to keep them going, you know what I mean? Like uh, a positive, I, I touched on it a lot throughout the show, but just an overall wrap up of, of like people that are out there and they're pursuing the things they shouldn't get discouraged by and such, you know what I mean? Any frequency or voice that communicates something that, discourages you. Ignore it. No matter what form it takes. I don't care if it's your wife, your husband, your child, your son, your daughter, your rabbi, your priest. Let not the form deceive you. If someone says or it does anything to diminish your sense of purpose, run from them. Politely excuse yourself and then don't argue. Don't waste your time arguing with them. And then I would also say, to be more pragmatic and practical about it, what I've learned for myself, and I can only speak for myself, is once I asked a friend of mine something, and he said, Rob, it's kind of like this. It's like going to Las Vegas, you know. 
You take everything you own, you sell it. You take the money that you have, you sell your family, you sell everything that you're attached to. It's a metaphor, right? So you sell it. And you take all that money and you go to Las Vegas and you bet on the same number for the rest of your life. My point is, is that from what I've seen, it's all or nothing. There's no half-step in this. You have to devote your entire life to it. And you're going to lose, like Charles Bukowski said, you're going to suffer derision. You're going to go crazy. You're going to lose girlfriends. You're going to lose wives. You're going to lose husbands. You're going to lose a lot of stuff along the way that's near and dear to you because you're pursuing something that a lot of people are not going to understand because it doesn't live in the realm of mathematics. It's not two plus two equals four. Every artist knows that two plus two equals five because it defies reason. Because I'm the example. Look, the tattooed guy. Come on, man. Years ago, people had me dead and buried in prison in a nut ward. I had friends tell me, Rob, I'll give you five years, man. It's just decades ago. You're either going to end up in prison, in a mental institution, or dead. Most people were not betting on me winning or even coming close to, I wouldn't even say achieving, but manifesting uh, a creative disposition that allowed me to make a living. Okay, so... I've heard all the voices, so to the people that are still listening, if we have anybody's left listening at this point, I hope you do. Um, I would just say, it requ- it's like, you know, it's the cross, man. You have to sacrifice everything and bear the indignity of the crowd throwing fucking rocks at you while you're dying up there on the cross. This is horrible. But know that there's a higher purpose looking at you, recognizing the sacrifice you're making, that most of the people around you are blind and not, cannot see. It's a result. You can. And you're driven by that dream. We're all driven by this idea of dream, right? So never let the dream die. No matter what happens, you still have to go. It's like the Vikings, Valhalla. You fight to the death, to the end, and you, you walk toward only. You don't kneel and crawl. You stand upright, and the greatest honor is to die in battle. You die trying. You die fighting for what you want. Never be discouraged. Do not let anybody discourage you. And not don't be fooled by logic and the minds of those who are incredibly logical who convince you that you are insane because they look at the result and go, well, look at the results, man. You can't just see the result. The writing's on the wall. I had a girlfriend years ago told me, years ago she told me, she said, Rob, maybe it's time to face facts, you know, because I was going through a slump. I, I said, you know what facts I need to face? What's that? The fact is I need to remove you from my life. <laughs> That's the fact I need to face. Wrong answer. And now it's ironic to me that a lot of the people that would say things like that are calling or begging them to me. You don't remember what happened with us. Or you don't remember what happened with us? I do. Because what you said was crucial to me. Not to be angry with you, but to remind myself of the importance of perseverance and not to listen to the whisperings of this idea of enemy. Not because they're bad or they're devilish, simply because they don't know any better. They don't live in the same world as us artists. They don't understand that 2 plus 2 equals 5. They've been trained by mathematics. No, 2 plus 2 equals 4. What you're doing is not going to add up to anything. You have to ignore the mathematicians and all the clever minds and the logical linear thinking and say, no, this does not apply to the life of an artist. It just does just ask Van Gogh. He'll tell you. Don't listen. Just do what you have to do. Because if you don't, at the end of your life, you'll realize that you betrayed 
something that's so sacred, and you have to answer to that. Not to God, but to yourself. At the transitional moment, you're like, oh man, you're going to see a lot of stuff. You're, at the transitional moment, when the body drops, you're going to be shown a lot, the gag reel of your life. And you, if you haven't fulfilled, really, you're going to be like, oh man, you don't want to be left with that sense of regret. I right. only would have, don't let them convince you that there's not some sort of glory waiting for you. There is. But I can't speak to what form the glory takes. I'm not talking about money or prestige and taking a bow in the name of lights. Those things may happen, but that doesn't always guarantee a happy life. So, you know, but what I say in terms of the artist, not success, not money, I'm talking about the life of an artist means that you dedicate your entire being to that. That's all you do. And everything else has to take a back seat. Anybody tells you you're selfish for that, you say, yeah, I am. I am selfish because this relationship I'm married to. And that's the only thing that really matters for those who choose this life or those who have been chosen. Because I don't think you choose it. You can't help but do it. Yeah. And if no one understands that, then that's fine. They don't have to understand. But don't allow them to get in your way and have become create a stumbling block for you to do what your your karma and your journey requires. If you do that, then they win. You, you betray yourself. So don't betray yourself. They truly. I mean, look at me now. Not that I care about any of the physics of this. It doesn't mean anything to me. I can't even see it. And my eyes are so bad now. I can't even see this. My point is, for years, people would laugh and mock me and say things like, you'll never play a leading man. You'll never win the girl. You'll never play this. You'll never, 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 never know. What kind of girl is going to look at this? Even in my personal life. I said, I don't know. Why don't you ask that beautiful blonde girl right there who's tattooed on her neck who's dating me? You yeah. see... You realize that you just can't listen to anything that makes you a monster now. And I know this better than anybody because they've made, they spent years trying to deem me the monster. Yeah. And that's cool and everything. It doesn't, I don't trip on it because I know, I know what that is and I, I know what I am and I know what I'm not. And once you know yourself truly, then all doors open in terms of possibility. You do not limit yourself based on somebody else's idea and perception of you. You overcome it. Overcome it through realization and, and, and application. You go out there and do it. Go do your own thing. You make your own thing. You, like Alex was talking about, you collaborate with your people to make something. You just keep doing it. Do it. Do it. And every day you wake up with a purpose. And some days you feel like there's not as much purpose. Mm. So then you appreciate the days when you wake up with more purpose. Like, wow, I'm so excited to be a part of this thing that we're making. Yeah. And don't ever let anybody steal your joy or rob that. From you. And be careful who, I would say, and I'll, I'll be quiet after this, be careful who you share your good news with, man. If you get some good news about work, really think about it first before you start handing it out, man. Yeah. You know, like money, you know, it's like money, man. If yeah. you want to be charitable, great. You can hand some of it out, but keep some for yourself, man. Because you hand out too much of it, you go, shit, where, where did all my joy go? Yeah. You gave it away. Don't give it away so easily. Hold on to it for a while and be really careful who you, who you share that good news with, man. Because they'll confiscate it. Yeah. yeah. Like that. 
It's true, man. That is that is definitely true. I, I know there's somebody that popped in my head immediately when you said that. I remember I told them, I was telling them about uh, something with the show that was good, and they were like, they dismissed it, which is like, but they don't do anything, which is the funniest part. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. I feel that. I hear you, and I feel that. I really feel that. Yeah. Feel that. Yeah. Well, that was great advice, man. We we thank you very much for being on the show. We took My up pleasure. a lot thank of your you. time today. We appreciate it. <laughs> I haven't done interviews in a while, so it's a long time coming that I talk to somebody about We're making this. up for thank it. For having Hey, we'd, we'd love to have you back again at any time, man. You know, you're, you're, you're fucking, we're big fans of your work. You're a great dude. Very smart dude, too. You know what I mean? You got deep with us, and I, I appreciate that deepness. Deepness is important. Anybody out there listening, get in tune with the deepness, and you'll have a happier life. Yeah. We, we like to go on the journey. It, it's whenever anyone asks us what would we do on the show, and don't get me wrong, we're all about talking about the career, about the experiences and all of that. But I like to believe that our podcast tr- transcends that and we, we go on the journey. It's what you want to talk about, what you want to put forward. Because we want to give people a little something more, something more to, to hang on to, to, to think about, to learn about. And the thing is, 90% of these interviews, we don't know where it's going to go, and that's what we love. And we love to take the journey with you. And, and like, like Matt said, I mean, when, uh, when your movie's done, uh, when you have anything that you want to promote, give us a call and we'll bring you on the show because we want to help and promote people and get more stuff out there because, I mean, as you said before, it's uh, this industry too much. Too many people are about, you know, what can you do for me or how can I, you know, hurt this person so I can be better. And, and we like, we like to, you know, help promote and help to push people forward because your success is our success. When you're successful, we're happy that you're successful. And, and that's what I think that both Matt and I agree with. And, what we try to push forward with our show. Good stuff. Good medicine. It's good medicine. Fuck yeah. Okay. All right, good. Robert. Well, you have a great evening, day over there, I believe. Yeah. You know what I mean? Enjoy. Take care of yourselves. You too. We'll talk soon. Well, what can we say? That was Robert Lasardo, and we had such a, such a great time talking to him. We, uh, we, like I said before, that uh, we went down the rabbit hole and we learned so much about him, about his career, his experiences, and, and, and just, you know, get, get such an insight into the, his creative processes, where he's coming from, and, and, and gives us, I mean, some, some, uh, I think some interviews we we get a little bit more than 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 we even hope for, and that yeah. is when someone brings in uh, aspects and ideas and and things that really makes you think and make you uh, well, in honest, be a better person or look at the world in a different way. And I think Robert really did that. 
he's fighting the good fight. You yeah. know what I mean? He could easily kind of take over, try and do something that's vengeful or horrific, but, you know, he's making his debut kind of a more positive thing, which I could appreciate. Um, you know, a very smart dude. And I didn't think he was coming in as a dummy or anything, but very fucking smart dude. Uh, very deep, very kind of self-aware, you know, very well-rounded, good dude. Really liked him as a person. I thought he was uh, great. You know, the advice that he gave to us, super gave to all of us superb advice, you know what I mean? That, you know, weeding out the people of doubt is definitely huge, um, and they're everywhere. No matter who you are, what level you're at, there's probably always going to be somebody telling you, eh, you know, I don't know. You know what I mean? And we've talked about on the show before, you know, family, friends, such like that, you know, it's, you know, your family and your friends, you'll have, you know, you have your supportive ones and then you have the ones that aren't supportive and there's multiple tiers to it all. You know what I mean? Like even the ones that aren't supportive, like I've had family that have been like, Nah, not so much. You know what I mean? But I don't think it's coming from... I have family that says not so much that I know is coming from a negative place, for sure. And then I've had people that were, eh, not so much coming from almost a positive place, in their eyes, at least, that I can see the positivity of it. It's kind of like they... The idea, like Rob was saying, the idea of success and the pursuit is so kind of vast and weird and uh, almost hard to, some would say impossible to obtain, I think that there's family and friends that might just try and, and, and trying to save you the heartbreak. You know what I mean? Um, and with those people, they, they mean well, but they don't, but they're not being well type deal. You know what I mean? Um, and it's a very interesting line right there. You know what I mean? So I think that a lot of the advice that he gave out, was superb, and uh, I felt like we probably could have done another three hours with the dude. <laughs> you know, if only my bladder was the <laughs> bladder of a young man and not a 75-year-old man like I am, I would have been able to... I'm going to have to get a... Anybody out there listening, uh, if, if you see a contraption that I could strap onto the head of my wank, <laughs> out of my pinochle, and just kind of let it flow like the Amazon rainforest, uh, while we're talking to people have, without having it interrupt the audio, you know what I mean? If, if there's something like that out there, <laughs> let me know. Because, unfor- you know, my bladder is my own worst enemy sometimes with, the, with, the, with these interviews where we'll be, I'll be like, we'll be three quarters or like 90% into a superb interview. In my, and it just starts, it's telling me it's time to go. You know what I mean? And uh, it's so unfortunate. I'm torn. I'm torn because I don't want to fucking, I don't want to leave the interview because it's going so great and we're getting so much stuff. Yeah, but I don't want to piss my pants either, you know what I mean? Which I will, taking one for the team, I would piss myself before leaving. <laughs> if you ever see me leave, if anybody ever says, sees me leave frame, you might as well call the paramedics immediately. <laughs> Because the only thing that we could be dealing with is some dire shit when I'm going down. You know what I mean? Like, I'm running to the phone. I'm running to get my cell phone or something. Um, 
But yeah, Doogie, uh, what do you think of that interview, Hawkman? That, that uh, interview was brought to us by the Hawkman. Well, I mean, like I said, I, it was it was such a great interview. We got we talked about things we uh, and, and delved into things that you know we we weren't expecting, which is what we love. We love going down the rabbit hole, and you know, as as I said before. We love to hear about the stories, about the careers and all that, but we also love to hear about, you know, uh, people's philosophies, people's uh, ways of looking at the world, uh, the, the triumphs and, 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 and the traps they have to overcome in life. I mean, it's, and, and like, uh, like we said, I know I'm repeating myself, but this, this, this world would work would be a better place. This world would be a better place if we all, you know, work together, not trying to trip each other up. And, and it's true. I mean, and, and tripping people up, I mean, it, it could be as simple as saying, yeah, I don't know. I don't think you're going to get that role or like, you know, maybe you should have like a, a fallback position instead of trying to, you know, be an actor. I mean, it's, and of course, people, uh, I mean, as Matt said, could be coming from a positive place where they don't want to see you fail. They don't want to see uh, you, you know, lose everything and end up on the street, which you know, could uh, could be a thing. But I mean, but the damage is done. The damage is done. The, the little bit of doubt, you know, can, uh, you know, just uh, destroy, uh, destroy a person. Sometimes. It makes you, it kind of makes you think the cancer that kills people. Is that cancer trying to kill people or is it just living out its life that is hazardous? You know what I mean? Uh, The cancer doesn't know that it's killing, perhaps. Maybe it does. Maybe it's on stage killing like a stand-up comedian. (laughs) But uh, it doesn't hit the stage too often anymore, I hear. You know what I mean? Um, It's got a bad rap to it, being the big C. Now, the big C sucks. Fuck the cancer. Um, Yeah. For sure. Whenever I say fuck the cancer, I always got that idea that it's saying fuck Matt somewhere in the dark shadows. And I don't even want to talk about it anymore. (laughs) But yeah, that was another great show. Uh, Buddy Buttafuoco texted me, said that was a great show. He was uh, tuning in live because Buddy Buttafuoco supports the Patreon page. So he's able to watch these shows live. He doesn't have to wait for a little catch up game. You know what I mean? But, uh, yeah, that was a great show, I feel. I thought we did a lot of good stuff. And, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? So, with that being said, you know, we hope everybody enjoyed it. If you did, check out other episodes on the Boombastic Media YouTube page. There's a Boombastic streaming page. If anybody wants to get super VIP style, where you can get a bunch of fun, cool perks. Very low money, folks. Very little money. Um, and all types of advanced listening. Like I said, with Buddy Buttafuoco, you could have been listening to this episode while we did it live. You know what I mean? Um, that's how it goes. And, uh, yeah, you know, check us out on the social medias out there. You know what I mean? Um, the Facebook is probably the most common to get into. You know, we've got Boombastic Films on Instagram. Uh, Boombastic Films and Boombastic Media both have uh, Facebook pages. It's broken up. 
by films is the films you got it and the media is the podcasting endeavors you know what i mean so it's a beautiful thing uh, i can't wait to see bloodthirst starring you two gentlemen you know what i mean and uh, it was it was good to get robert on you know what i mean he was a really cool dude and um you know i, I maybe i should have thanked him i think you thanked him for being so kind to the hawk because yeah, whatever I, think, I think i did <laughs> Whenever somebody's kind to the Hawk, I consider it kind to me and kind to the show and kind to the whole universe because the Hawk deserves all the kindness in the world. And uh, another super oh, thank you. Thank you're, you. Man. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. So with uh, that being said, we hope everybody enjoyed the show again. We hope everybody's doing well out there. And we'll catch you all on the next episode of the Boombastic Cast. Peace. peace. Give peace a chance. You know what I mean? Peace, not vengeance. Yes. Vengeance doesn't solve the problem, and violence doesn't solve the problem. It's a band-aid, per se, over a gaping neck wound. You know what I mean? It isn't going to fix anything. You need some uh, fix-a-flat or some of that shit they got on that the 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 the, the, tele, the television the infomercials where they slap it on the boat and the in a big tub of water and the water doesn't come down anymore. You need one of those things. A slap over that neck wound and you'll be good. All right. So it is love. choose love and positivity and kindness at all costs. All right. And we'll catch you all in the next episode. Be well. Be merry. Be boombasticast.